The following is a part of the Radio Memphis On Demand service. It originally aired live on Radio Memphis and has been edited for time. Here on this Sunday evening here, the 16th of June, happy Father's Day. Uh, to those of you who may be fathers or uh, don't know that you may be fathers yet, uh, it could be an interesting <laughs> week for you. I, <laughs> um, I talked to my dad today, as a matter of fact, and today is also his birthday. About every seven years, his birthday falls on 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 Father's Day. So I accused him of being a double dipping bastard. And, uh, <laughs> well, that's not nice. <laughs> <laughs> he's uh, let's see here. He's eighty six. So uh, happy birthday, pops! Happy birthday, pops! How are you, Natalie? I'm doing great. How are you? Fine, fine. Did you have a decent week, did you? Yeah, I did, and and I'm glad you're back in in, in good voice today. <laughs> yeah, it's been a. My wife has enjoyed this past week. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> I'm not a hundred percent on the voice, but uh, but I'm I'm passable. I can I can get through it. I still have. Mm-hmm. I had a headache earlier from the sinus and all that other stuff, mm-hmm. but it's stopped dripping onto my throat, so I'm good. Oh, that's good. That's good. I'm glad. I'm alive. I'm I'm good. So. So so yes, yeah. You know, with all the allergies and the molds and stuff that are in the oh, air. Is it, when's it gonna end? I don't. I don't know. We're supposed to get some rain in these parts here later on this well, evening, so that, that yeah, should help sure. out quite a bit. And yeah. uh, um, I did see, interestingly enough, uh, for those who who look at these sorts of things, uh, the Mississippi River is going to be cresting either Tuesday or Wednesday at like 34 feet above flood. Oh dear, that means I got to start watching the wolf because I live pretty close to the wolf. Well, yes, and the one of the issues is that because of all the water that has happened well north of here, especially up in the Midwest, that does feed into the Mississippi. Mm-hmm. They're expecting the you know because it takes a while for all to, to to get off into the Gulf, but they're saying that it'll stay at about twenty nine feet above flood stage, uh, like through July. Okay. There's there's so much water and there's so much kind of flooding that's still happening out there that's going to take a long time because the ground's saturated, mm-hmm. and so it's just going to keep piling up. All right, for a this while, is so. yeah, this is a little worrisome knowing that we have rain for about the next week coming. Pretty so. much, yeah, starting tonight all the way through Thursday so far. But anything over seventy two hours is kind of a fantasy. So hopefully it's not as bad as it seems. But we could be seeing another five or six inches here in this area over the next. Four or five days. Okay, yeah. Thanks for that heads up. Something sure. to keep an eye on. Our friends at MemphisWeather.net are the ones that I follow. Eric Proceus, who is the meteorologist for um, uh, FedEx, is uh, he, he he works with all the pilots. And so he's developed this neat little system called it's MemphisWeather.net. It's a fantastic website. They have an app that is cool. It uses the GPS on your phone. And if there's a if there's any severe activity, it, it alerts you personally that it's not just this area. It's like there is there's there's a tornado in your area, and it'll tell you, like very close to you. You know, go go get in your bathtub, go outside and look at it, whatever you want to do. But mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, that's that's cool. That's okay. what we weather dot net. Right. Memphisweather dot net. Yes. Okay. Memphisweather Absolutely, right. get the app. It's good. It's 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 cool stuff. And, and activate the Stormwatch Plus. So that's that's what that is. Um, tonight, um, you have brought to us a a, 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 a a recent guest. I guess it's been a, a while since uh, Tom, you've been here. Uh, last time you were here, we talked Robert Johnson, and we had a big old time because he was one of my favorite people. Um, and you're back with a brand new book called White Boy. Right. I'm glad to be here. Well, we appreciate you being here. I haven't I haven't read it yet because somebody didn't bring me a copy, Natalie. Well, Mark ended up with it, and and he's, <laughs> he's out of unable town. to be here. Yeah, yeah he's out of town today. <laughs> That's okay. 
Um, I, from what I've heard, when you guys were, before we got on air, but you guys were talking about some of the stuff in the book, this sounds uh-huh. fascinating. And, uh, I, and I have some is. ancillary knowledge I was talking to Tom about upstairs earlier. Mm-hmm. I might be able to kind of chime in on some of this because mm-hmm. I, I know some of the people you're talking about, right. you know, clearly. Uh, and then you and I had exchanged a few messages, I guess, yesterday about this. Um, about some of the stories that right, you were getting right. into, and you read this thing. You were you had a little time off, and you were laying uh, uh, what on the beach somewhere in Tahiti, mm-hmm. somewhere reading this thing. Mm-hmm. About a month ago, I was uh, I was lucky enough to go to Florida, and and uh, I was telling Tom earlier that uh, it was such a fun read that every now and then I'd laugh out loud, and my friends were like, "What? What? What are you laughing about? What are you reading?" And so, uh, I mean, the just the cover of it, White Boy, his little cute face from. His little picture from what, what grade was that when that's you, my first grade picture? Oh, your first grade mm-hmm. picture. Okay, so even my son, I got a twenty year old son, and he and he he looked at the cover and he was like, "Oh, white boy." Well, yeah, yeah, it was yeah, meant to be somewhat to uh, you know intriguing and provocative by putting the white boy in these huge like Citizen Kane. If you've ever seen yes. that, when when <laughs> when, the, when the first uh, yes. you know title comes on, it's like takes up the whole screen. It's huge, you know. And I knew one reason I did that. I knew that uh, first of all, I used to be kind of cute back then <laughs> uh, in first grade, and uh, it's my best picture. Well, and, uh, now wait a minute. I take. I take. I have to. I have to because I. I you brought, brought an annual. I, 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 yeah, I brought an annual, <laughs> and we were looking at your junior high school picture, and you were still very cute in junior well, high school. Well, gosh, you bless and your not heart. Not that I'm not saying you're not cute now. But yeah, y'all went to school together, didn't you? That's we right, did. We did. We, did. we, we did. went to the same high school. Mm-hmm. Well, Tom I knew was that... Tom was a few years uh, ahead of me. I was more his younger brother's. That's right. Class. I have a younger brother mm-hmm. named Norris, and he's your age. Yes. Right. Uh, I knew that people walking by in a bookstore with all the noise, the visual noise yeah. that there is, I still knew that this would attract people to it, and and. Uh, even though the publishing company that, that I'm now the owner of, uh, DeVault Graves Books, we always had a blank cover with just our logo on the back of every single book we printed. Right. Published. I said, we, we can't do that with this book because people are going to want to know what it's about. So you have to put and, the thing on the back. Yeah, so we got to put a blurb of some kind on the back, a description to get them into the book. Right. So that's what that we broke our own rule f- just for that. And I think it's a smart marketing move on our part, you know. Uh, and there have been people picking it up and looking at it and so forth. And, uh, you know. Well, so, it is. You know, it's charged for sure <laughs> when you look at it, you yeah. know. And, and they are going to go, oh, what the hell is this all about? And it couldn't be misconstrued. But on the back, you very quickly see that this is not a story about uh, some white supremacist who's saying white power. No. Right. I, what I'm saying is, 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 as I was a white boy, I was an innocent born. And yet I was subjected to all this racism. Because you were born you here, know, right? Yeah. I'm a lifelong Memphian. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so there's a whole trajectory of how I got from there to where I am here. Right. And I, you know, am a completely different person and with thought processes than I was. You know, I came from a racist family, as many people in Memphis did in those days. Uh, I don't know that my family was any any way worse than anybody else, but it was something that, the, you know, the N-word was the main course. It was a side dish. It was dessert every day pounded into me. But, you know, I'm, I'm not a person who had that kind of heart to be hating on people my whole life. I sure. Just, it just wasn't there. So slowly and gradually I evolved 
and I tell about the things that made me evolve. You know, there I have a million stories to tell. Uh, in the city of Memphis, you know, I mean, how many years now has it been that they've actually admitted that we were are, are a majority black city? It's only been maybe the last 15, 20 years max. About right. But how now. long do you think we really were majority black? I think it goes back a lot further than that. Oh, sure. And, you know, being raised in Memphis, you were, no matter how white you wanted to be, you were surrounded by black culture. The foods you ate at restaurants, the people who prepared those foods for you at those sure. restaurants. Uh, just everywhere you went, the music in the air around you. Black was everywhere, okay? And then you had some things like our local talent party show. Remember George Klein? Oh, the, yeah. The late, great George Klein, where you had, uh, you know, on one hand, you might have Jackie Wilson. If you remember, Jackie Wilson was on that show. And then you might have a, a, a white frat band on there playing a song. It was all mixed up. And Memphis has always been a complex, mixed-up, racially Town. Wasn't yeah. Elvis at, at, like, in his very early, early, early days when that first record came out? Wasn't he thought of as because like, he was playing black music in essence? Well, but if, yeah, if you remember the story, Dewey Phillips uh, got him down to the station right. to interview him. He pointedly asked him what high school he went to, so that his he, he already knew this, but for the audience out there, so that when he answered that he went to Humes, everybody would know he was a white cat, you know. Playing this music, wow. like wow, wow! We had never heard a white guy sing like this. I mean, there's right. Bill Haley in the comments and some other guys, but hey, this is a whole different shift. And so, isn't that funny how so many people recognize his voice as being black? Right. Okay, and they were wrong, you know. But in a sense, they were right too. Sure, they? sure. I mean, because Elvis had absorbed this stuff, and I don't think he recognized this in himself until Sam Phillips. Heard him cutting up in the studio with the guys. They couldn't get anything good on tape. But somehow Sam Phillips said, that boy's got it in him. And all of a sudden they were cutting up in the studio singing a blues song. And it's like it clicked, click, click. It was the universe's light bulb went off at that moment. And so there it is. You realize I was was born on that day. Were you really? I was. That is my birthday. Oh, wow. I always said my dad could have walked from Methodist Hospital and interrupted the session, you know. Wow, that's <laughs> Look at my baby that's boy. Not, that's not in the book, but oh, that's, well. that's actually true, yeah. you know, uh, of my July birthday. Uh, but, yeah, uh, and so I had all these stories in me. Can I tell you how the, the book came about? Absolutely. Every book, including the Robert Johnson one, every book I've written has come at me sideways. I've been using that word a whole lot lately, sideways. Uh, I've been working on a cookbook, of all things. And I'm not a cookbook. I told you about that before. I had hooked up with 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 80 years old. Well, I had to put it on hold for this one. Uh, I I worked with an 80-year-old black lady who taught me her kitchen secrets of cooking soul food. Oh, my. Because I did not know how to cook properly. No. So I said, okay, I want to do this, and I think I might want to turn it into a book. So I got with her. I said, I want to pay you for this because I don't want, you know, so we, we all arranged it. And so every two weeks, I would meet at her church. She'd been the church cook for 40 years oh, and had God. just retired. Yeah. Okay. So she met me every two weeks with a whole table full of food that she would bring <laughs> and her recipes. <laughs> and if you don't That's think I awesome. had a big time, okay, well, uh, so I started working on the book. And basically, <laughs> I've got it finished, but I, I don't have time to do two things at once with the book. Sure. Uh, but I wanted to write a chapter about her because I thought she was fascinating. She had started cooking for her family at nine years old. 
they would actually be working in the cotton fields in the morning. And at a certain time every morning, she would go to the kitchen, light up the, the wood stove, and cook the whole meal for the family every day. That was her job. So from nine years old on, she's been a cook. So she really learned, and she learned from her grandmother because her mother didn't like to cook. <laughs> anyway, so I wrote a chapter about her. I said, well, I'm, I'm the other author of this book, so let me write a little bit about me. And it's in White and Boy. And that, yeah. that little bit that I wrote, started writing turned into the book White Boy. It just uh... wouldn't stop. Books take on a life of their own. There's, there's a, an old saying that an author doesn't choose a subject. The ch- subject chooses you. <laughs> and this has basically been the case in every one of my books. It's a weird process. But once I got started, I knew I had something. And I, I thought that my life as a writer was relatively boring. But when I looked at it through a certain lens, a certain prism, right. all of a sudden, boom, everything just came. I mean, I, it's, it's almost like I could see it on, on a bulletin board in my head, you know. Sure, sure. And so I got started with it, and just story after story after story spilled out. And what's really weird is, like, for example, uh, I was in the sixth grade. And when I was in the sixth grade, we had a split-level class, they called it, where half the class was fifth grade, half the class was sixth grade. Mm-hmm. There were four black kids in, in the whole classroom, all right? Right. I could remember the two that were in my sixth grade, Sharon and Joyce. I could not for the life of me remember the names of the other two little girls. But once I started writing, Andrea and Catherine, names came to me. And I, you know, and I knew that there was no mistake. I mean, I, that was it. So it's funny how your memory will open up to you when you start writing and telling these stories and stuff. But I've really savored the whole thing. And uh, what's been exciting has been the acceptance out there of all kinds of people from my past. But the African-American community in Memphis has really bent over backwards to love this book. Why do they love it so much? Well, my guess is because... I shoot so straight with everything. Yeah, it's There's very no honest. BS here. It's absolutely honest. It's an honest take. Okay, I came from this family, y'all. I can't make apologies for all of it. But here's where I, here's the way I evolved, and here's where I am now. And I've had some tragedy along the way in terms of my love life. You know that I end the book with my tragic love story, which I can talk about a little later if you want. But uh, anyway, there's a lot of stories here in this book, as you know, mm-hmm. Natalie, from mm-hmm. reading it. Mhm. Yeah. Oh yeah. So you start out you start out talking about um just basically being very young and and growing up around Memphis and about how Zoo Day. Yeah. Basically Zoo Day. that was your first experience with talking to your dad about wanting to go to the zoo and he said no, we can't go today because it's nigger day. Well well yeah, okay. Here's what happened uh here. This is where my first instance of understanding that there was some injustice going on. Okay, I understood the world was just divided up into boys and girls, men and women, blacks and whites, okay? Cuz the bathrooms told you that. Everywhere you went, you were told where and what you were supposed to be. Mm-hmm. So our family met another family from out of town at Overton Park for a picnic, and we had a big time. And we had such a good time that the other family said, well, we should come back on Thursday to go to the zoo all together. How about that? And everybody agreed to it. And I, I tugged at my daddy's sleeve, and I said, Daddy, we can't go on that day. Thursday is, quote, nigger day. That's the way it was referred to, unfortunately. Uh, and Daddy looked at me and he said, son, 
He said, they can't come on our days, but we can go on theirs. That's right. And and I go, what? Wait a minute. How is it that we, that we can go on their days, but they can't come on? No. Something's not right here. And that was my first real taste that there was something wrong, you know, with the equation of race, okay? Mm-hmm. And, of course, you know, I, I began to see more and more of the things around me, you know. And uh, another story that I tell is when I was in the sixth grade and we had had the integration at Bethel Grove School. And uh, the first grade teachers, for some of them getting up in age, one of them was pregnant, they couldn't do the calisthenics with the little kids anymore. And, of course, exercise was really pushed back then, if you remember. John F. Kennedy was really into the right. physical fitness and right. all that. Oh, yeah. you know? That was a big thing. All right, yeah. so that was, you know, so... Okay, so the answer was to get the, 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 the oldest boys in the, in the grade school, which is sixth graders, and teach, get them to teach and work with the little kids, all right? Mm-hmm. So uh, that's what we did. And when we formed circles to play games and stuff, these little kids would actually almost fight to hold our hands. And I remember the first time a little black girl was pushing. She wants to be, hold my hand, you know. And I, I can see this. And she grabs a hold of my hand, and she's just as bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and happy to hold my hand. And the first thought in my head, and I'm going to be honest with your audience, is, you're touching a nigger. You're touching a nigger, Tom. But just as soon as I saw that, it just melted away. Like, look at that little girl. How can you, how can you think that? I, I, I scolded myself. And, I, and when she touched me, I remembered something. From almost from birth. Ophelia. Ophelia was the church nurse that took care of the little babies. She was a black lady. She took care of the babies in the nursery. And I probably stayed with her up until maybe two, three, four years old. I don't know. But see, I was still at that same age in sixth grade. She was still at that church. And I would say hi to her every Sunday. But that little girl touching me took me right back to Ophelia and the warmth and comfort that she had given me as a little a little kid, a little baby, a toddler. I mean, it, it's not like I had memories. It was feelings that just rushed on me. Would that be something that you would have taken back to, back home and to, to tell your family about? I don't recall that I went back home and told uh, that at all. I, I, I think I kept that inside. I bet you but did. But it was, it was a precious memory to me. I mean, and, and revisiting these things, let me tell you, the good and the bad in this book, I relived it writing this book and on the days when i had to write about the hard stuff it dragged me right back through it y'all and oh, I would it, imagine, was, yeah. it was tough yeah. but i you know i'm a writer i know how to do these things but i mean it really brought out a lot of emotions in the work mm-hmm. on this but i'm so happy that it's there uh my daughter who's the most precious thing in the world to me other than my granddaughter although uh, they're the two my daughter grew up with me writing, and basically it's kind of like she's very nonchalant about it. It's like, okay, Daddy's got another book. Yeah, okay, all right, big deal. You know, I think it's my granddaughter at eight years old that's going to grow up to read my books and to cherish this. I think it'll be future generations of my family. Right. You know, but anyway, you know, it's it's there for posterior, uh, posterity. Posterity. Pos- Posterity. I, I'm, get, I'm getting. Come, t- t- come on, I mean, word guy. I'm, yeah, there you go. <laughs> He's a man of <laughs> letters, posterior. for God's sake. Yeah. Okay. I'm making a posterior. A posterior. Out of that's all right. <clears throat> but yeah, yeah, you, because there's every writer has a different motive uh, for their work. Uh, like from what you're saying here, that's well, this is just this is for my family, but it's more than that. I mean, it's for everybody. This was this was in a sense a purge of 
you know, I love my father, by the way, okay, and my mother too, uh, in spite of their flaws. Okay? Well, sure. They were wonderful parents to, to me and my brother. Sure. Love them, miss them every day. Uh, you know, but there again, I'm a realist and, you know, I know I have my flaws that my daughter should, could certainly talk about, I guess. My parents had flaws and their racism was the poison in, to me, in their character. It really right. was. And, and my dad fussed and fumed much more than my mother. And who did it hurt? Only himself. And it's kind of sad that he, he allowed that. Now I had to dig to see why was my dad so much worse about these things than my mother. Where did this come from? So I explored the past, and I did find out some things. My grandfather died many years before I was born. Uh, but what I found out was the family secret. is that in the 1920s, apparently, he was an actual member of the Klan. In, oh, my. In Pine Bluff, Arkansas. Now, I had asked my dad about that years ago, and he had said something, well, yeah, we knew about the Klan, uh, and I think my dad rode with them sometimes. Well, what does that mean anyway? But no, I found out that, in fact, he was a sheet-wearing, cross-burning Klansman, and that uh, at the Methodist church that they attended, and I know that church because I haven't been in it, but I've been past it a million times, uh, one Sunday a month the Klansmen would come in their robes and hoods and sit on the back row. Now, this is the 1920s, and people need to realize the Klan was a political power not only in the South but throughout the nation. They marched on the Capitol, all kinds I've of things. I've seen those newsreel footages of, 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 the of, Klansmen. of those Klansmen, and there's, there's a lot of them. Yes. A lot of them. Uh, the Midwest was a real uh, stronghold. Oh, yeah. Which everybody thinks that's a southern, like, deep, deep south thing. No, it's it was, not. It was, no, it was Midwest. Okay. Yeah. So he, during the 20s, was a member. Uh, I don't know if he stayed with it, but the Klan, I know, was very active in that part of Arkansas till at least the 1970s. Allow me, allow me to read a couple of sentences here sure. on page 27 of the book. No one knew who the Klansmen were, supposedly, but you can bet a lot of guesswork was going on. The Graves boys looked at the Klansmen's hands and knew by the set of strong, calloused, scarred hands that their father was sitting among them. That's right. That's right. I had been told that my grandfather occasionally rode with the Klan, but only recently did I learn that he, in fact, was a sheet-wearing, cross-burning, night-riding Klansman. True, true. Now, let me flip the switch, and this will blow your mind. Somebody... Uh, Lynn Sittler, she wanted, she, I know she'd be happy for me to mention that she was the one that talked me into this. <laughs> I know uh, Lynn, yeah. She told me about getting her DNA done. She, she was after me to get it done and that I should think about it to write about and so forth. So I wasn't real keen on the idea, but I said, yeah, okay, well, for, for Lynn's sake, I'll do it. So sure enough, I spat and spat and spat and spat into the tube, which it ain't one little spit, y'all. No, it's you got to fill it, right? <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, it's, it's a whole lot more difficult than you might think. Right. Okay, you fill that tube up, you send it in, they, they do the, the analysis. And so, uh, you know, I had always been told that we were Scots-Irish. But we found out actually before this that that probably wasn't true. So I got the D- DNA results back, and I am about as British, y'all, as the queen. Maybe even more so. <laughs> oh, my. Okay, I mean, it's like all the checklist of things that you could be. 
that I thought everybody had. I thought everybody had a little bit of American Indian in them, maybe a little Jewish, way back yonder somewhere. Sure. Uh, some Asian, some this, some that. No, not me. Straight from the British Isles, you know. And maybe a little Irish and Scottish in there, but I'm, I'm about as British as a person can be, with one exception. Way down that checklist, which was all blank except for one little check mark. And I looked at that, and I am zero. 0.4% West African. <laughs> Which means that you're somebody on your mother or father's side was a little bore. Somebody with something in, <laughs> out there. Yeah. We don't know exactly where or when, did but... You, when did you spring this on, Daddy? Well, Daddy never knew this, of course, and I think that he and my grandfather, the Klansman, would probably be spinning <laughs> right now to learn this. But you know something? I bet, don't be I talking bet those Klansmen, <laughs> if you did their DNA, I'll bet you there would have been some, prize, some surprises in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, too. I, bet I think right. we probably all have a, maybe something like that. But what did I think about it? Well, I immediately called up all my friends and said, guess what? You know, if I were 200 jigsaw puzzle pieces, one piece would be African. You know, that's true. You know, that's, think about it. That's awesome. Uh, I love it. I love it. I mean, it makes me wonder if there's not something in me that has made me want to write about Robert Johnson that's made me think about racial things and been attracted to women of, of many colors, but yes, in Memphis, certainly women of color here too. Sure. And I make sure. no bones about it. I find uh, black beauty very appealing, white beauty very appealing, women, period, very appealing. <laughs> <laughs> I am a lady, a lady lover, you know. Well, that's, that's so, a, that's uh, a good know, thing. Uh, not much at my age, but uh, certainly in my youth. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, we're here with uh, Mr. Tom Graves tonight with his uh, brand new book, White Boy. As we continue uh, discussing this book, and uh, uh, Natalie, you have, uh, you, yeah, it's like you have a as, selected as we, spot As we here. continue talking about Tom's life, uh, the the next part in his book that I found kind of amusing is where he kind of starts to talk about how he, his kind of uh, fondness for black women came about. And he starts to talk about how maybe it kind of started out with Donna Ross and the Supremes and so forth. But but I want you to take this up, Tom, with, with talking about Star Trek and Uhura. Well, oh, Michelle uh, Nichols. Oh, when you think back on it, those of you who are, I'm I'm, I'm going to be 65 uh, in just a few weeks. But remember back when we were kids, did we really have beauty models as such for black women? And the answer pretty much is no. I mean, you know. Uh, so when Diana Ross and the Supremes came on television and those slinky gowns and those long eyelashes and those really sexy moves and gestures, you all of a sudden knew this, this was a new dynamic here. Right. And this was some beautiful, gorgeous women, you know. And, and, and as kids, uh, we would ask, would you? Would you kiss a black woman? Okay. Now, this is before I even knew about sex. And it would you? And of course, we would all make faces and pretend like we were throwing up and ooh no, uh, uh, you know, and all that. Well, when the Supremes came out, I, I distinctly remember some somebody being asked that and then go, ooh, well, the Supremes. <laughs> <laughs> so I, it changed things. Then in 1968 uh, is when Star Trek debuted on NBC, 
And of course, for, for any teenage kid, I was 14 years old at the time. I mean, Star Trek was about the coolest thing you'd ever seen in the world. Oh my God, you know? yes. Oh, I mean, awesome. and Spock with the ears and Captain, the emotional Captain. I mean, it was just wonderful. And then all the spaceships and the, the gadgetry and all that was just great. But Lieutenant Yahura, played by Nichelle Nichols. Now, she wore that mini skirt, and <laughs> yes, she had she legs did. all the way up to heaven. <laughs> And was she beautiful or what? I mean, there was no She's denying. A this is lady, a yes. stunningly beautiful woman. Yes. But here's the cool thing about this, and this is a story you may not know. Um, um, she was she was a crew member who was the equal of everybody else on board. That's correct. Okay, yes. she was not treated as a sex object at all, even though she was really sexy. Okay, but she wasn't treated as a sex object. She was like one of the crew, a professional, and she fit right in with them. I mean, she was one of the boys. But she was definitely one of the girls, wasn't she, you know? So do you know that after the first year, she wanted to quit Star Trek? And she ran into, at some uh, benefit or something, Martin Luther King Jr. I've heard this story. It's fascinating. It, it's really good. It's a great story. Uh, and, uh, you know, he said, look, I love your show. He said, my boys and I, we make it a point every week we can to get all together and crowd around the TV and watch Star Trek. We love you on that. So, well, you know, I'm going to be leaving this year. And he said, you can't do that. You can't do that. Do you realize what a role model you are for our people, and particularly the young women out there, that see you as this professional and see how beautiful you are, and it, but yet, you know, you're treated as an equal. Yeah. And this is what we're wanting. And you have it, you know, on this show. You cannot leave. You're too good a role model. And she stayed with it, of course, throughout the history the she's still yeah. alive, of course. Oh yeah, still beautiful in her older age and oh, everything. She's and just a, yeah. she's a national well, treasure. And, she, and didn't she go on to have like the first kiss with Captain Kirk? She's the uh, first interracial well, kiss. The first, yeah, there's debate about kiss. that. It's 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 definitely the first one that was shown nationally with impact. Okay, freaked and, a lot and, of people and, out. Yeah. Well, here's the funny thing about this: William Shatner basically orchestrated that. So that the very last take, he kissed her. And it was the one that they, they, they messed up the other takes. They had one last one. They were getting ready to go into overtime, I think or it something, was. Or something. Yeah. And he orchestrated it so that he actually kissed her on the lips. And they basically couldn't change it without a whole new... Right. They had their, uh, he forced you know, them yeah, to yeah. use he, it. So in other words, he, 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 he arranged for this. <laughs> that sly dog. He, he is a, definitely a sly dog. <laughs> and uh, so, he, so NBC braced itself for a deluge of hate mail. Because of this. Yeah. Did it happen? No. No. And here's no. my theory about that. People didn't write in hating on all that because they wanted to kiss Lieutenant Yura too. Sure they, they thought, did. that lucky son of a bitch. Yeah. You know, Kirk, he gets all the women, yeah. including Yahura. Yeah. You know, lucky man. So no, no, no. It really broke through a barrier, though. You know, and in certain ways, it broke through some barriers well, there for was me. A, there was, it wasn't just her. There were, there was... Just about every ethnicity was represented on that program at one point or another. Yes. Because, you know, yes. you, you had the Asian guy with, you know, uh, with George Takei, you know, yeah, uh, Sulu. Right. right. You had the Russian guy on there, you know. Right, and, right. And, of course, right, Spock, yeah. when nobody really knew what that was, you know. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but, yeah, but, tolerance yeah. for other other people and places and And things. to be treated as equals, yeah. Yeah, it was great. It was a great show. And, of course, it's, it's one of history's great, great television shows. But in my own life, I remember... I talk about a girl I went to high school with uh, in the book, and her name was Deborah Harrison. God, I wish somebody would reach out and find her. Um, she was kind of what, what the blues singers call a big-legged woman. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, she wasn't one of them little skinny minis. Okay, she wasn't a bony Maroney. She had some flesh on her, and man, that girl knew how to walk and move. Let me tell you. And if you don't think I was paying attention, and she did a she did a skit in front of the school where she pantomimed with another guy to the Joe Tech song "I Got You." Uh-huh. If you remember, I got you. Uh huh. Huh. Thought I didn't see you now. Well, she was played the girl that the guy kept beseeching, "Give it here." Give it here. Well, we knew what he wanted to be given here, right? Right. And she kept turning her back on him, and she was wearing a cat suit. And I have a picture from our high school annual mm-hmm. that's in the book of her. Yeah. I actually have it. So you can see what I'm talking about. But I remember being just stunned by this woman in leotards in a cat suit, just going, whoa, you know. And I thought, man, if I were caught in a blizzard and we were in the closet together, you know, cloakroom, would I jump across the line if Daddy didn't know? Yes, sir. I sure would. <laughs> now, the funny thing is that Daddy after I graduated know. from high school, I was going to Memphis State then. And it was a year or two later, I go to the McDonald's there. And I'm looking at the sign to see what, what, what do I want to eat today. And somebody goes, well, hello there, Tommy Graves. <laughs> and I look up, and it's Deborah Harris, the same woman. Oh, my. And I go, Deborah Harris, how are you? You know. Yeah. And we chatted for a minute or two, but she was so sexy. And, oh, my God, I've never forgotten it. Yeah. You know, and I wish, I just wish. Maybe this year the know? reunion next month. Tom. I maybe would she, give anything to see her again. I really would, you know. Uh, but, but she, you know, uh, these people, then I got a job where I worked around all these really foxy black girls. Now, the funny thing is, and I tell the story, this is absolutely true. Sometimes I was lucky enough to actually have a real beauty that I would go out with a time or two. Yeah, I would be so frozen up and tongue tied and nervous, and those girls didn't like that. Those beautiful girls. No, I don't know how I got them that one or two dates, but sure enough, I mean it. It never lasted beyond a few dates, you know, never did. And I would be so tongue tied. But then I would go around the black girls that I worked with, and I'd be flirty and I'd be funny, and they loved me, man, up there, you know. Sure. But I never sure. thought about crossing the line at that point, but. I didn't have a point in time where I crossed the line. Oh, well, of course. You know, we are going to yeah. get to all that and I, more. I don't know how much of that you want to get. You, I'll let you have We're to We're going to get to that. Okay. All right. Okay. Uh, the next chapter in your book is called To Black Folks Like Elvis. And yeah. This, this yeah. was at a point in time when you were interested in writing a book on Rufus Thomas. So you did, uh, you spent a, a, quite a bit of time interviewing Rufus. That's right. And so there's an what Elvis, sweet guy. there's an Elvis yeah. connection here. And so if, if you, if you talk a little bit about that, cause it's really interesting. Well, I wanted to do a book with, with Rufus. We could not get the New York publishers to understand who Rufus really was really? and how great a raconteur he was and his history. Of mem- we could not make it happen. And I had a good literary agent working on this. It just didn't happen. But I had worked with him, and I'd gotten all this material from him. But he had this great Elvis story. Uh, He was the first black disc jockey in town to ever play any Elvis record right when That's All Right Mama came out. So he knew it was a cool song, and he, and he, he, he played it. And his audience liked it. They liked Elvis, okay? Well, the station manager was white. And this said, is a WDIA, wasn't it? WDIA. Yeah. And the station manager said, man, don't don't be playing Elvis. Black people don't like Elvis. Really? And, well, Rufus <laughs> says, I didn't want to lose my job. So did I play Elvis? No, I stopped playing Elvis. He said, but, you know, 
Elvis showed up at one of our Goodwill reviews. You know, they uh-huh. used to put on these reviews twice a year, and they were uh, a charity to help cripple children, black children, uh-huh. who could not go to school otherwise. Right. Basically, they funded these kids to go to school. Yeah. And so Elvis was, was back in the day when he still got out and did things. George Klein took him down to the backstage to the Goodwill review. And so, uh, of course, everybody was, like, thrilled that Elvis was there. He was making it big at this time. And uh, about 1956 or so. And uh, the stage manager, who happened to be white, said, well, let's go on and get Elvis on stage right now. And Rufus grabbed him because, you know, Rufus is an old entertainer down on Bill Street, okay? So he knew what he was doing. He said, no, 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 no. Do not bring Elvis out now. He said, you put him out there on the stage. They'll go crazy, and the show's going to be over. Done. You can't follow that. You can't follow that. Yeah. And and, and (laughs) the guy, no, man, you know. And it's like, I'm telling you. Put him on at the end of the show. Well, the guy reluctantly agreed to do it. So they put on the show, and Rufus was dressed as, as an Indian. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. So at the very end of the show, he takes Elvis <laughs> out on the stage and introduced him. And how did the black crowd react? Well, Elvis, of course, he had instant rapport. Sure. You know, I've heard so many stories about that Elvis. If you saw him, he, he, he even in his later days, he was magical on stage. Oh, yeah. The people that oh, yeah. W- women would faint around you. It became so electrified, you couldn't believe it. But anyway, he comes out, and he, he does one of his leg jiggle things. That's you know? it. It's over after that. And he, oh, he, he wiggled around on the stage for just a minute. He said that the crowd went ape. You know? The women were clawing to get at that man. I've he seen said. him in person. And uh, said the show was over. That was and it. he said, and, and the kicker. And the next day, I went back to playing Elvis on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> it was proof of the pudding. Because, well, yeah, Elvis yeah, I also, know. I mean, I, one of the stories that, that I had heard was in his formative years, Elvis would sneak down onto Beale Street. And he would... he would, well, well, Rufus had something else to say about it. About getting into the... He would stick his... Elvis would stick his head in the back doors of some of these of these clubs to hear the music. Well, but how Ruf- accurate was that? Rufus says he never he said, now Rufus was down on Bill Street all the time. Sure. He said I never once saw Elvis. He said I'm not saying he wasn't there. I'm saying I never saw him there. But he did definitely show up at Ellis Auditorium for the gospel music sings. Yes. Uh it, it, I mean he was he uh JD Sumner, you know, who's sure. with the Blackwood Brothers. Uh and later toured with Elvis, said that he, he he saw Elvis long before he ever recorded. He said, you couldn't help but notice Elvis, that he was so different. I mean, he just, he stood out. So he said that everybody, and they would give him, t- give him free tickets and stuff because he was poor. He sure. couldn't afford hardly to get in, so he'd, he'd hang around backstage, and they'd go, oh, yeah, that's that Elvis kid. Give him a ticket, you know. Sure. And they all knew who he was, but not on Beale Street. Not on uh, Beale Street. So, it's it's you know yeah, there's, there's a, a lot of, there's a whole lot yeah. of myth about Elvis you know, but uh, yeah because Bill was markedly different than it is today of course yeah but you it, know, it, it was yeah totally different know, it was thing. a whole whole different vibe with that yeah okay so back to the next chapter of your book um, I'm going to speed up just a little bit because even though you did have some brief uh, relationships with women uh, apparently by the time you were 21. You haven't done the deed yet, let's say. <laughs> I was getting right at twenty-one, and I was I was in a in a early life panic. I, the, I absolutely. The title was. of this chapter is "The Dark End of the Street." Um, Very aptly titled too. 
And on page 91, you say, I was determined not to go into my 21st year of virgin. Right. By God, something had to be done. Since I had no girlfriend or steady date at that moment, there could only be one other course of action. Oh, no. I would pay for it. Oh, no. <laughs> I did not have enough money to pay for some high-priced call girl, plus I had no idea where to begin to find such a person. At that time, there were no real strip clubs in Memphis, and I'd never delved into the dark side of Memphis nascent and and scary porno world i was i was a knave and know nothing a virgin for god's sake but i knew vance and fourth street everybody did that's where you went for a black street walker the lowest sexual life form on this green earth it was known to be dangerous to fool around in that part of town especially if you were white you might get robbed you could wind up stabbed or shot you might get a beat down just for the fun of it from some gold tooth gun toting pimp and you might get arrested your name on a rap sheet a year in the doghouse with your folks a pariah on campus but i was willing to risk it all for that one moment of pleasure that i couldn't tell a soul about but True. i could say to myself that i was no longer a virgin that i had crossed into the line into the world of sex i was finally a man not no boy child, a man. I spell M-A-N. You get the picture. <laughs> I hope I painted that vividly enough I for think you. I did, yeah. I, it, it, it. Uh, so yeah, did how you? Do you describe, how do you describe a downtown visit? Well, I did. And, you know, the thing, a lot of times when writers talk about these kinds of somewhat embarrassing situations, what they, t- they, they kind of hold it at arm's length and describe it a little bit for you. And I knew that wasn't right for this. I wanted to pull you in to the back seat of that. Well, actually, the front seat. The front seat of that car and let you know exactly what happened. Okay? Down to the nitty-gritty. And it was dark as hell down on that corner. And these women would can't come out underneath the streetlights, and they look like something before before dawn of the dead and all that. You know, <laughs> remember the old like old you see, the, the old old horror comic books? <laughs> yeah. Okay, where you see these ghouls oh, with with <laughs> dripping stuff out of their mouths we and gaping, you know, and and, and 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 nothing in their eye sockets and all that. They look like something out of those horror comics. But I said, I, okay, I'm, I was I was trembling. There's no joke. I said, I've got to make this happen. And they crowded up around my car, and I picked the one with the least rotten teeth. That's with my criteria. Uh, I had $15 in my wallet, and I had $20 tucked away in my sock. You were were loaded with cash. That was a lot of money back then. And it cost me $10, and she saw the $5 and offered me, I won't go into it on the air, a little something extra for that extra $5. And I paid it. Of course, you're like, hell yeah. I, I didn't know what she was talking about. Hmm. <laughs> I don't know I looked, what you're talking about either, uh, but I'd like to know. Uh, okay. We'll save well, that for the break. I'll, I'll yeah. fill you in uh, on our break. But anyway, uh, she offered me a little a little tidbit extra for the $5 and as well. Okay. Oh, I think I know That's now. like the cherry on top or something, I, think I, I guess. Now. You know? So anyway, so we went through it. It was difficult because I didn't know what I was doing. She was just scared of me. She was very scared of me. And she kept asking me repeatedly if I were a cop. Now, I didn't look a thing like a cop. She was scared. I was scared. Yeah, but you're you were scared. a big white. You could have been like a narc. Like a, I guess because I'm tall 
and I was yeah. skinnier then you and everything, but I was still older. I was still hefty well, enough. How many older. how many white kids were hanging out down there at that time? Uh, well, was that a regular thing? Here's with these an girls? interesting thing. Uh, several people have since the book was out there have read it and told me I had a very similar very experience. similar experience. Okay, so, so I would I would suspect that in those day and time that's what those girls were down there doing. Well, you said everybody uh, knew about it. Everybody knew about it, and I have a feeling that that white boys. And black boys from all over the city trolled down there all night long. Otherwise, how could they have made a living of any kind? Sure. You know, so they had to be doing it. Well, it went in uh, that Giovanni teeth, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> no. Hey, they, they were really, really a bedraggled-looking group. of. They were some of the nastiest-looking women. But I, I just said, okay, you, I could turn the car around and flee, or I can go through with this and, and, and just, you know, Man up here, and I, I kept telling myself, "Man up!" And I was trembling, but there was one part of me that I won't go into that was absolutely that was ready. Saying, there was a part of yeah. me that was ready, yes, yes, yes. and yes. willing, and, and telling me, "No, Tom, you're not turning around. Uh, uh-uh, uh, we're going through with this. We're doing this. We're yeah. doing it right here. Uh, uh-uh. uh, you know, we're gonna be a man so when we get out of this car. It happened. It happened, and." uh I, I was I was I was almost physically sick afterwards, uh, and I and I didn't feel safe till I got back into Parkway Village in my white neighborhood, and uh, so you know that was village. that was my introduction into the world of sex, and uh, you know do I regret it? No, uh, he didn't for sure. Do what? Your buddy down there didn't. Oh uh, well, I don't. You mean the girl down there? I don't know. No. What are you talking about? You said there was a part of you that kept saying, "Oh, oh, oh that, yeah, that, that, part of me yeah. was going, yeah, Tom, thank you, thank you, we're you know, good he'll, now. He'll you, never you are a man, it. you know, M A N." But you know, it, it I, I, even when looking back, I wish it, it occurred with a girlfriend, you know, uh, somebody that I cared about and all that, and you know, all the angels singing and all that stuff. But. Right. Well, it should give you a little comfort that, like you said, that there were there have been some others come forward that say they had a similar experience. It's, for, it's not like you're for, the only for one. Young, for young white boys of that age, it was sort of a rite of passage for many of them. And I hear it because they're, they're coming in. This book has opened up so many doors for people to discuss things with me you wouldn't believe. I, yeah. I would, I would and been, I mean, I look, imagined. you didn't get robbed. You didn't get stabbed. Yeah. You know, you didn't get shot no. or beat up. No, nothing really bad happened. Uh, it was just scary to me because I was out of my element for sure. You know? well, and plus just the nervousness of a first-time experience. Oh, sure. Uh, we're here with uh, Mr. Tom Graves. Uh, he's, a, he's a writer. He's a, He's been on before we were talking about Robert Johnson. Uh, and he's got a brand-new book called White Boy. Back to Robert Johnson. I saw the documentary on Netflix. Netflix. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that? Uh, unfortunately, I yeah. have. It yeah. was it was interesting um, to sit there after after our conversation about it, and I'm sitting there watching this, going, "This is kind of hackneyed." Yeah, it, it, it was okay. I, I, I most mean, all the blues connoisseurs, except for uh, Bruce Conforth, who uh, the, the guy. There, there's a new book on Robert Johnson that claims to be the definitive book. It just came out. It's called Up Jump the Devil. Robert Johnson fans certainly might want to take a look at it. Sure. Uh, and it may have some new information in there. Uh, but Conforth has really worked overtime to put my book down. Uh, and Why so we, want- <laughs> God, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's been paving the way for his new book sure. for, for, for 12 years. 
Okay. Yeah. He wrote the only negative review of mine that that's the, uh, really a, a long ne- negative review on Amazon.com of my book. Okay. And um, anyway, you know that's that's neither here nor there to your audience. Uh, but they did this Netflix documentary, and who did they go to? Did it come to me no. or Peter Goralnik? No. See, they, that's what I was expecting when I saw yeah, that it had yeah. come up. I'm like, oh no, they got Bruce Conforth, who says he's found Robert Johnson's birthplace, and I, you know, I have my strong doubts about this. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the gra- of- and the whole thing with the grave that was interesting. Uh, uh, there's, you know, it's, it's, it's for just example, marker, uh, Robert Johnson's grandson is a talking head on that. Do you remember? Yes, yes. Like, like he was an expert. Exactly. Okay, and you realize that the, the Johnson family had no clue about Robert Johnson. No, they didn't. They didn't know he was dead at twenty twenty seven. Well, but 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 he had a son who grew up only knowing that there was a musician that was his daddy named Robert Johnson. He did not associate or ever know that was the Robert Johnson. You know, yeah. they wrote Crossroads, right? right Crossroads right. Blues, right? He had no idea until he heard something that, that you know, where they contacted him, uh, that he might possibly be a son of Robert Johnson. And it turned out the state of Mississippi declared that he was the true heir. And well, well, he had sons too. Well, he's now the son has passed, and it's on the grandsons. Well, they're they're on this Netflix show talking like they're they're experts on Robert <laughs> yeah, Johnson. And they, like, they didn't have a clue who he was. You didn't know so, him. You, you know, know, come on, why don't you yeah. know? So yeah, I saw one thing after another that just made me just shake my head yeah. the watching thing, that. The whole thing to me seemed to be geared towards younger people. Yeah. Or, the, or those that are just that are yeah that, that don't know about him. Right. right. That it was that. Ignorance about it, not in a bad way, but the ignorance of, of who Robert Johnson really was. My, my there, wife saw and it. A, and she, there's a new show on Netflix called Documentary Nail. Have you seen that? No. I, I, I just caught a few a few of them this week, and it's 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 a farce. The, yes. it, it, they're not real documentaries, but if you watch a couple of these, you realize real quickly how easily it is to, to just... To be manipulated by this? To make up a documentary that's completely false, but to fool people into thinking that this was... Rob, every Rob, bit of it's real. are based on an actual documentary. There's like an actual documentary that all their documentary nows are based on. Right. <laughs> but see, but see, to me, the, the whole, the mockumentary, if you will, that, that all peaked with Rob Reiner and Spinal Tap. <laughs> I mean, that's just classic stuff right there. And it's a beautiful story, but because it could, you could put any band into that, and a lot of it is based in some reality. Yeah. But to sit there and forcibly try and feed that pap to people as though it's real, that's, that's kind of wrong. Well, I I just not to get too far off the subject, but I I just have to look at this, I also yeah. saw Rolling Thunder about the Dylan Bob Dylan thing. Oh yeah 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 yeah. And they, they specifically just... Scorsese specifically like fabricated. Oh yeah. You know stuff in this. They call them Easter eggs, but well, I mean they're called lies just, in the real world. It's like what? No, no, I can't take liberties with people. I like mean, that, no. you don't expect that from Dylan, but he's just like, well, you know, I don't really remember anything about it all, you know. <laughs> so I guess he was cool with it. I guess. Um, Tom, this book here, White Boy, you call it a memoir. Is it? Is it? I know it's autobiographical to a certain extent, but would you consider it a, a true autobiography? Yeah, yeah, I, I do. I mean, it, it's it's definitely the story of my life with different. <clears throat> 
you know, asides and excursions that I take, you know. There's a theme to the whole thing, obviously, uh, well, clearly. Well, the, the but, theme you know. is how, how did Tom Graves, who came from this racist family, deal with the racial situation in his life? Yeah. Because if you're growing up in Memphis, you got to deal with it. Sure. So how did I? Well, I learned that I got a lot more out of embracing this culture than rejecting that culture. Yeah. You know, and uh, people ask me, uh, after my first divorce, I was married 23 years and then I was divorced, well, Tom, why did you start dating black women? And this was not a conscious decision. I would go places and I would see white girl after white girl look right through me as if I weren't even there. Right, right. But yet some of the black girls who were some really good looking ones make an eye contact with me. And, you know, you, it's, it's a whole different thing. In the black culture, it's, it's a lot quicker, you know. White girls, yeah. you got to warm the warm up to them over the whole night before you can get a dance or whatever, you know, or or, 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 right. or invite them for a drink. With black women, it's quick. You know, they either they like you, the or they, they like get, you, or they yeah. don't like you. That's it's true. that quick. Yeah. And I found myself having a whole lot of fun sure. with these women so and thinking they were good looking. And then the next thing you know, <laughs> I've got about. a few girlfriends going on. Do we want to talk about the women at Wild Bills right now? Or I don't. Like- I don't mind at all. I, I, that that was after my divorce. I discovered uh, an authentic blues club. I didn't want to go down to Bill Street and hear Stormy Monday for the fifty thousandth time. You know, Mustang uh, Sally. Mustang Sally. <laughs> yeah, y'all know the. Hey, wait a minute now. I like Mustang stop. Sally. No, not here. You don't. <laughs> <laughs> I like my blues. Hey, I was in my back- but ain't nothing wrong with a little I, I was in my Sally backyard today, and I, and I'm close to Rail Garden, and I don't I don't know the name of the band, but you know how good Led Zeppelin really was uh-huh. when you hear somebody attempt to do a Led Zeppelin song, <laughs> and, they and on every level they ain't getting it. I mean, all of a sudden you go, okay, now I realize how good Robert Plant could sing, etc. All right. <laughs> yeah, you want to so, go out there and go, stop it! But back Just to Wild it. Bills. Yeah, Wild Bills, okay, yes. Okay, yeah. Okay, so this is, there was, you know, there used to be a, was it the Green Lounge or something that used to be a long Green's time ago? Green's Lounge, yeah. Yeah, yeah okay. Mm-hmm. And that burned down, and I never made it to that. But then I heard about Wild Bills over on Valentine. Mm-hmm. And you go there. Maybe ten or ten thirty, and the music would start at eleven. That was uh, that play. Okay, they only sold beer by the quart. Yes, and they it's had three, they had three food items: burgers, wangs. Yes, not wings. Wangs, wangs, wangs. and fries. Okay, and uh, one dollar per wang. All right. Well, by eleven o'clock, when the place starts getting packed, and these are people I discovered very quickly were not necessarily born in Memphis. They were from the rural areas around Memphis who had gotten jobs in Memphis, but they didn't grow up with soul music as we know it from Stax and all that. Right. They grew up with hardcore blues, you know. So that's what they wanted to hear. And I'm telling you, boy, it got rocking in that joint. Oh, I bet it did, and yeah. I'm telling you, I never had more fun in any one place in my life. And if you were a single guy there, it didn't matter who you were. They are going to come and literally grab you by the collar like this yeah. and lead you out onto the dance floor. And Come on, they, white boy. Things would, ha- <laughs> things would happen. Things would happen to you out on that dance floor oh, and bet. afterwards too. Uh-huh. I remember one time. Can I tell the story? Yes. Please do. Yes. Okay. Please do. I remember. One, I remember one time. 
But I was dancing, you know, energetically, and this girl was dancing, and we were just having a ball. Now, were you, you white know? boy dancing or dancing? I, well, I, I, I can I can fool some people sometimes. Okay, good. You know, I got, remember I, I remember I got that little black in me. Yeah, right, there's right. enough that counts. Zero point four percent. So I put it to full use, and I'm out on the dance floor, and this girl grabs like we're dancing. She grabs my hands, you know. And she puts them on her breast in front of the whole crowd now. Uh-huh. Seething, just, you know, crowd. Puss and said, go ahead. Hang on, big boy. Said, go ahead. Like, All right. You know, <laughs> I went ahead, y'all. And another one. Come she, in. Talk she, to she, she, was she well endowed? She, she, she well told endowed? Me, she told me, huh? Was she well endowed? She was endowed well enough. <laughs> Uh, she was a handful and then some. And another time, this girl, and before we started dancing, she went, you want to dance, baby? Yeah, sure. All right. She said, you know, I'm going to give me some, some new teeth uh, next week. She she had no teeth in the front at all. Uh-huh. She said, I'm going to give me some teeth next week. I'm like, oh, I'm glad you are. All right. You know, it was that type of place. Man. Sure, sure. Okay. And so we were dancing. <laughs> and the next thing, she was getting a little closer and a little bit closer and a little bit closer. Next thing, she was grinding up on me, you know. Now, I don't know about any of you fellas, but when somebody grinds on me like that, there are physical reactions yes, that take yes, place, yes, yes, right? Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. Am I right? Okay. Yeah, the audience so, applauses, so and sometimes she, you get a standing ovation. She was ovation. looking me right yeah. in the eye while this grind was going on. And so the, the, the number was over, and, and she said, yeah, baby, I can see what I did to you, didn't I? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And she knew she 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 was, was like very a source proud. of pride. Yeah, <laughs> she was very proud of uh, how. Come on, white boy, let's was. go. Come on, white boy. And uh, I remember, I remember, I tell this, and I, I, I guess we're not censored on this. No, you're uh, not. So, so I, I can I say f word? Yes, you can. Okay, well, okay, audience, get prepared for it. Buckle your seatbelt. <laughs> I remember really late one night. There, it was about to get in closing time, and I had, I had had a few, and I, I was still hanging on. And uh, one of the girls looks across at me. She goes, you pretty. You know that? I went, well, thank you very much, you know. I'm going to take you home fuck shit out of you. <laughs> and, That's not subtle and, and, at and, all. And, and audience, you know something? She did. <laughs> okay? So. I think you're going to sell a lot of these books, Tom. <laughs> so three or four or whatever hours later, we were sitting there, ah, relaxing, watching TV, and she's flipping the channel, and Tarzan's New York Adventure comes on. Okay. Okay, everybody knows that movie. Remember <laughs> yeah. Remember when Cheetah, you know, uh, finds something, uh, some cold cream and eats it, and oh, finds yeah, something yeah, yeah. in a bottle and yeah. like, yeah. drinks it, yeah. and all of a sudden it's woozy, you know? Yeah. yeah. She, this girl, she pokes me and says, Cheetah drunk as a motherfucker. <laughs> so, uh, well, damn, Tom, she was a keeper. Uh, uh, and you know, I, when I look back, and just, at all just think the, she's going to get her teeth the next week and everything. No, no well, yeah, uh, these girls were fun, and I kind of missed it. And until I met my uh, second wife, who was African, I'm telling you, I had I kept having fun. I mean, I had a girlfriend who was black too, and. Uh, I met her. She worked for an estate sale company here. And it was one of those things like in a movie. I kid you not. I went, uh, I had seen in the paper that they were advertising they had a lot of record albums. So I, I collect record albums. So I decided I'll go check it out. And I went in this room, and this beautiful lady was sitting in a chair working for, you know, taking people's money and stuff. 
It was one of the things like in a movie where you look at somebody, they look at you, and the camera zooms in on you and all that stuff, and you hear the love music in the background. It was like that. Yeah. And I had at least a solid year of the most intense relationship I ever had, where we did not, for nearly a year, we did not go a day without being with each other in some form or fashion. And closest like that sounds great. But it can produce a lot of sparks too. Sure can. And I mean, we yeah. had some epic fights. I'm telling you what. And uh, <laughs> it, I, but it started winding down, and that's when uh, I, I wound up uh, meeting my African wife online, and uh, that's a whole nother story. Ooh. Yeah, we'll get to that because oh, that's yeah. that's in the book. We'll get to that oh, yeah. uh, a little bit later on. A lot yeah. with that. Uh, Tom Graves is here. Uh, glad to have him back here. We were talking about Robert Johnson upstairs. We don't want to you know derail this this discussion because we we're talking about the book. White boy, which uh, Natalie over here is uh, has reread read for the what the fifth time I think so far. You you got you got you got some dog-eared no, things I going on. Re- some... I will reread it for sure. It's, um, it's it's definitely worthy of a reread. What does it What does it sound like to have her read passages out of it? I meant to ask you that because as a oh, writer, I, lo- I love to hear other people read my stuff. It's it, you know, it it. Uh, Sort of an echo of the mind, you know. Does it come out the way that you had envisioned it as you lay it down to, to print? Well, somebody... it always comes out in, in an interesting interesting way. Yeah. yeah. I love I love that. I really yeah. do. Yeah, that's great. I know as a writer, there's a, there, there's got to be that, that little bit of a hesitation about, I wonder how this is going to go over. <laughs> you oh, know, yeah. You, you always... have to be very careful about how you phrase things. Yeah, course, I mean, so. writers are both two things, you know. I've been accused of this even on my phone tonight, you know, being too sensitive and then being too opinionated. Oh, okay? whatever. You know, and it's like the two things that go hand in hand with each other. Yeah, you put yourself out there, and then you get hurt so easy. Well, so you're an artist, know. though. Yeah, it's the artistic temperament thing. That's all it is. Whether yeah. you're a writer, whether you're a songwriter, whether you're a sculptor, a painter, whatever, There's, there's, there's. you have to run that gamut of emotion. You do. Um, yeah, you and you have do. to be able to kind of dance between those those lines very carefully. And everything that you've done uh, is, has been fantastic. These, these stories out of this book are just Tremendous. Well, what do you what do you what do you got there? What do you you over here massaging this book like there's something really salacious <laughs> about to happen well, here? Working our way through the book, we're about halfway through now, and Tom's at a, a period of his life where he's he's divorced and and he's he's living in a, a tiny garage apartment. You know, he's sitting right here. You don't have to talk to him about it. <laughs> <laughs> he's kind of struggling financially. He's kind of in a down point of his life, and he. And he's and he's kind of just searching around, and he and he ends up he ends up taking a creative writing job with the Shelby County School System, and he's got he's got a a, a lot of interesting things that happened to him during this short period of, with working for the Shelby County School Systems, and some some of these stories are really shocking. Some of them are sad. Some of them are quite amusing. Um, and I'll let him tell a couple of those uh, stories but uh, one thing I will say uh, here I'll just read this on page 152 of his book it comes down to what he says and this this should this should shock everybody or maybe not I can say without reservation that if the common citizen of Memphis knew what went on, what went on every day in the schools of this city they would burn the Board of Education to the ground. True. I think that if you had a list every day of all the really intense things that go on in the schools, P- 
people would be more than shocked about what really goes on day to day. Now, all the teachers know all this stuff, but the, the public does not know. And uh, it, there's some pretty shocking things that go on. Um, in the inner city schools in particular, discipline in the classroom is very hard. It's hard for the best and most seasoned teachers. And if you have black students, if even uh, the, the black women teachers seem like they, they were able to control the students better than anybody else. Uh, everybody else was, was pretty much uh, a free fall sometimes, you know. Um, and if you were white, the, the, the students assumed that you were sort of a Casper milk toast, that you were easy to, uh, it was easy to get away with murder in the classroom. They didn't have to be disciplined. They didn't have to listen to the teacher and all this. And, of course, you know, that didn't fly with me. So I obviously butted heads all the time with these. The seventh grade students are what I was uh, t- teaching on, under a grant that the president of Memphis City Schools, Johnny B. Watson, specifically got from me. That's a long story how I got there. Uh, but he was basically doing me a favor and giving me a good salary to do this. But it really was a circle of hell. I would never want to go through that again as long as I live. Uh, even though I really love some of the kids. That When you teach a bunch of kids, your students almost become like surrogate children to you. Mm-hmm. You care about them. You care uh, that they're healthy and doing well and all that, and, and their hurts sometimes become your hurts. Uh, you can't help that. But it, it was still a very difficult job, extremely difficult. Uh, there was a guy that started at the same time I did. Hickory Ridge was a new school, by the way, brand new, shining, glossy school that within a day had, it looked like it was 10 years old. I kid you not. Well, a guy I had actually taught at the University of Memphis, he was one of my students when I taught English there. Um, he got his teaching certification, and he was middle-aged as I was. He, we were similar in age, and he had suffered polio when he was young. So he walked with a pronounced limp. And uh, But he was the most cheerful, upbeat guy you ever saw. He got his teaching certification. He could not wait to teach these children science. That was his thing. And then the bomb hit. And these children just drove him almost crazy. And before the first semester, the two semesters, you know, before the first semester was out, he resigned. He couldn't handle it. We could see what was happening to him. Day by day, he got worse. And he he came in sleepless and haggard and worried all the time. He would be tweaking his eyebrows like the guy in Miracle on 34th Street. Oh, my, yeah. Uh, We knew that he was really having issues. And then one day we went out for a drink, and he said, man, I'm quitting. He said, I'm leaving, and my brother and I are going to go down to somewhere in the south, and I'm going to collect disability, and that's going to be it for me. I'll never teach again. And we never heard from him again, you know. And they threw somebody else into the position, and they got started, you know. And wow. You could, you could walk down the hall, and you could see the kids throwing things and, you know, standing up when they weren't supposed to. And teachers, you could just walk down the hall, and it was just bedlam everywhere, you know. And uh, I tried my best, and I think, you know, at times I achieved somewhat discipline in the classroom, but it was really difficult. But at the same time, there are so many incidents of things that happened. I saw violence uh, to th- the students th- from th- parents. I think that what, was the most shocking thing to me during this some time. Some of the stories you told about some of the kids that 
that were that were so that, you, that that were so bad that you know you had to bring in the parents and have the sit downs with. Yeah. What shocked me, I guess, the most about that was that you kind of understood why the kids were the way they were because the parents would obviously have no problems like backhanding some of the kids right in front of you. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, just showing obvious. Uh, a uh, father nearly choked his son half to death right in front of me and the assistant principal. And I, I was, I was uh, dumbfounded. I didn't know what to do, but the assistant principal, thank God, had his marbles about him. And he, he, he almost leapt across his desk and pulled the guy off of his son. He was literally choking him with both hands around his neck. He toppled him to the floor and was just strangling the crap out of him. And uh, as soon as he was pulled off, I grabbed the kid. And I, I hustled him off down the hall and stuck him in a broom closet where his dad couldn't find him. Okay, I said, stay here till the coast is clear. And when we got finally got rid of the uh, father who was sitting there grinning like he like a mule eating briars is what I say in the book, like he did nothing. Then we finally just basically got rid of him, and I went and got the kid out of the closet and took him back to class. And I never had any issues at it, you know, from him after that because he trusted me that I did something for him, you know. Uh, the one that that sticks with me out of all of them though, there was this little shock. The funny thing about seventh graders, okay, tell me if y'all have any experience with this some seventh graders look like fourth graders they look like little kids out playing hopscotch or kickball or something like that they're 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 tiny they have they haven't reached puberty yet and they remind you of much younger children then there's some seventh graders like some of the girls who are absolutely as filled out as grown women yes they have the curves but they don't have any clue what they're doing with it okay and some of the boys, I mean, have gotten <coughs> muscled up and, you know, all this kind of thing. And, and I, you wouldn't want to tangle with because they're, they're so stout, you know. Well, this one little girl whose feet literally dangled and would not touch the floor when she sat at her desk. And she always came in uh, looking like a little Sunday school girl with a pressed little dress, bobby socks, patent leather shoes. And she was real thin and she was always cold, so she always had a sweater on. And uh, she was very shy, would never speak a word in class. And uh, before class had started in the morning, after the first bell rang, she would come and sit next to me. I had a chair next to my desk. And she would sit next to me while I'd be preparing my lesson plans and stuff. And we would chit-chat. Usually I'd be fooling with stuff. And we just polite little chit-chat about this and that, you know. And she would only talk to me. She wouldn't talk to anybody else. And so one day she was sitting next to me and she said, Mr. Graves, I don't think I can do any writing for you today. I said, well, uh, dear, what's wrong? And she said, well, my mama and my stepdaddy whooped me and my uh, sister last night with a lamp cord. And I can't move my arm hardly. And I said, well, honey, uh, let me see what, what happened. She rolled up her sweater and uh, she was a dark-skinned little girl. There were red X's all up and down oh her arm. God. God. And I said, okay, honey, I don't know what to say, but if anything else happens, you let me know. Oh, so she, she sat back down and when class uh, started. But I knew I had to do something. I said, I can't let this go on. So I sent a note and, and by a special student to the vice uh, principal 
And I said, do not let anybody see this but him. And if he can't see it, then bring it back to me. Well, she got it to him, and I told him what happened. And he called uh, social services, and she was gone for the next couple of days. So she comes back and, of course, comes and sits down next to me. And I said, well, well honey, uh, I see you've been gone a couple of days. You all right? What, what happened? She said, uh, some people came out to talk to my mom and stepdaddy and told them not to hit us anymore. And that was the end of it. But it broke my heart. It really did. And mm. uh, it's, I, I would love to know what happened to her. I would hope yeah. that she's grown and doing good and yeah. all that. But I saw the, the, the teachers were a lifeline to many of these students. Yeah. I mean, a lifeline. And I saw so much wrong from some of the parenting. Mm-hmm. That you, you could you couldn't help but know that's why the kids sometimes misbehave. Oh, of course, it really yeah, came from the parents. I mean, the school system doesn't always do the best job either. Um, and so on a, on the other end, uh, here you are trying your best to help the kids, and uh, as you say, you get frustrated. So there's a story about tell the jackass story. In other words, the which story? The jackass story. Oh. <laughs> Uh, I almost feel like I ought to read that one because it reads better. Oh, please, you, you yeah. I'd love to hear you read from This is real book. short, y'all, so you can bear oh, with no, me. No, that's fine. Uh, it's about me going to the principal's office uh, because she uh, – oh, where is it? Now look what pages is it on there. B, B, B. Here we go, here we go, here we go. Okay, so the principal calls me in her office, so I'm wondering what, what's going on. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what now? Here's the principal. Mr. Graves, I heard from several mothers that you called one of our students a jackass. Me. Actually, what I said was, you need to stop that jackass laugh of yours. Mr. Graves, you can't use a word like that around these students. Me. I'm confused. Uh, that boy and look, looks and sounds just like a jackass when he laughs. It's ridiculous. But they don't know what that word means. They think, and these mothers think, you are using profanity. What? Jackass? It means a donkey. It's not profanity. I know that, and you know that, but they don't know that. My God, jackass is a term used in the King James Bible, for God's sake. And that's why we have separation of church and state, Mr. Graves. Holy Jesus. (laughs) What's the whole point of an education if you can't define the word jackass to a to to a much a kid? No, just but, but think about this. I did call the kid a jackass. I mean, or or, or said said I, I said stop that jackass laugh of yours, and then I could hear a ooh in the classroom. <laughs> and then you go home and tell mom and daddy. Guess what, Mr. Graves called the boy and he called a jackass. Oh my God, he's using profanity around you children. I'm going to call the principal. Look, you little motherfuckers. You're glad I didn't. And so the principal, the principal, the principal thinks, well, you know, we're 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 on a higher intellectual plane than the mothers and fathers here. So but you and I know this, but, yet, but they don't. So you can't. Oh use my that god! Word. But yet, is this the same principal that said, "Let them have all the candy they yeah. want"? Yeah, she can't. She didn't want any corporal punishment. Now, this is still controversial. I didn't like getting my butt whooped when we were in school. Coach Baker whooped my butt one time when I didn't deserve it, and I still hold a grudge to this day over that. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, but but anyway, the, these kids were uncontrollable and feeding them candy. See, the principal didn't understand what all the teachers knew is when the kids go to lunch and they start loading up on candy that they put in their 
packages and there's no stopping them, they're going to come back the next in the next hour or two. They're going to be pinging, pinging like ping pong balls in the classroom. Sure, yeah. You could not control those classes after lunch. No way. <laughs> and the principal didn't understand any of this, but every teacher did. So explain that one. You know. And you were yeah. doing the Lord's work being a teacher. I, my my uh, sister is a retired school teacher, and uh, and she was in special ed, and so that was a whole different level mm. of 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 her work. And uh, uh, those people job. are doing the work of the angels. You know, oh my God! But and, any teacher, I'm sure there are bound to be some teachers out there listening to this. They know exactly what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. And the ones that I mean, like I've got one close friend who stayed at this school. This is since 2002, yeah, I think. Yeah. So she's been there ever since. I mean, they deserve some sort of, uh, you know, uh, medal of a. Uh, they need something. Uh, the, yeah. the, the French Legion or something, you know? <laughs> yes. Uh, because this is really hard, hard work. And the, and teachers are, are so exhausted, you wouldn't believe. Oh, yeah. Every teacher I knew had to go home and take a nap because they were utterly exhausted. As soon as they reached the door, they fell out the, the for an hour or two. And then you'd stay up till maybe ten thirty and go to sleep. I mean, it was it was a rotten. The, way ster- to live. the stereotype, the the jokey stereotype of teachers with the blender and the bottle of vodka or tequila or whatnot. I mean, there's some truth to this because <laughs> well, had, yeah, it was a know, coping mechanism for it, a lot of these people. It can drive you to drink. I'll tell it, you it, that. It can uh, do that. Yeah. But uh, but I, if, if people could go for like two days at some of these schools and see what happens, if they could be a fly on the wall, right? They would be so appalled. And what happens? I mean, uh, now, did you know that, that there are first graders that are attempting to have sex in the bathrooms and stuff because oh, they've seen their parents' videos? First graders? And they don't, they, yeah, they've seen these things. Which we're they don't talking know about yeah. six-year-old kids here? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, have, I have a friend who was real high up in uh, Memphis City Schools that told me about two girls that, has, that one of them had seen a girl-on-girl thing uh, on one of her parents porn videos that she slipped in that we're parents t- and she was trying to see what it was like with her friend you know and, oh, when i was and, that okay, age now I, this is not isolated y'all i barely knew where my butt was when i was six <laughs> well they, but, but but see they, they they get hold of these things and another one of the stories was this a boy was going into the the gym room and slapping the other boys on the butt okay so they called you know the parent in to you know, because this this is harassment, and uh, th- yeah. you can't you can't do that. Okay, well, the, some of the boys are about ready to to whoop up on him for slapping the butts. You know, so they brought the mother in, and they described what was going on. She said that boy done been into my porn videos. Oh God, I kid you not. Oh my now, God. Now you know uh, these are things that see the people who are who who run our schools know these things go happen every day. Yeah. Okay. So if there's anybody out there listening that's in Memphis City Schools, what's now Shelby County Schools, but some of our inner city schools, you know about these things. And, you know, there's a whole lot worse than probably what I'm even talking about. If, this was only one year. Imagine if I had been there 10 years. Mm. I mean, no telling what I would have seen in all this time. And uh, I couldn't take it but one year anyway. And, you know, teaching even at the college level ain't easy, you know. No, because so, yeah. they're just now trying to figure out the world. Yeah, and and how they fit into it. Yeah, and and I, and, I, and my hat's off to you for doing that. That's, yeah, and that's, that's you know, incredible. teaching kind of runs in the family. Uh, my daughter's a teacher, and she loves it now. Uh, you know, and she's teaching first grade, and it, it's it's a very good experience for her, and I'm very glad for her. The whole the whole thing is just going great. So you know, 
But my Happy Father's period, Day, by the way. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much. My daughter's been at the Bonnaroo, so. Oh, yeah, so out there in Manchester, she, I heard. When she gets back, I want to hear all about it. So <laughs> I'm sure there's some That's stories cool. to be told. As we continue on with our conversation with Mr. Tom Graves, his brand new book, White Boy, uh, available where sold Amazon and uh, and bookstores uh, all across the all across the all the globe. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it's available everywhere. Uh, we were talking earlier about you putting together an audio book of this. That's right. Yes. Um, you have you haven't started the production on this, have you? Yeah, yeah. We started the production. It's been submitted to Audible, which. Oh, good. Uh, basically yeah. con- controls the whole audiobook market these days. Oh, yeah, that's and the it's world. it's waiting now. for a final review, and uh, it'll be up as soon as that happens. So yeah. if everything goes according to technical plan, it'll be up probably within a week or two. Yeah, audiobooks are a big thing. Man, people are digging them. That's a good way for people to consume well, uh, uh, you know, yeah. books. Yeah. yeah. Are you having to edit... From are you taking it word from word out of the original manuscript yeah. or are you no, full length the you know, full length no, thing yeah full length book uh, yeah and it went very smoothly and well this time too I mean my first book Crossroads uh, it's it, you know there was a lot of editing that had to be done to get me right you know but I think I've learned the craft a little bit better yeah so this one went way quicker. Yeah, and uh, I think it's going to be very good for people who like audiobooks. And how many how many hours would this be? Uh, you, you, you reckon? I'm thinking about six hours, something like that. It's not my bad. Guess. Yeah, it's not bad at all. Yeah, and uh, you know the the thing about Audible is the bigger the file, uh huh, the longer it is, the uh. more money you make. So I hope it's at least six hours so we can make some good money, you know. <laughs> Stretching this out uh, to yeah. six and a half, seven hours and get, right. get the- I think we've got one audio book that I publish. Through our company, Devault Graves Books, it's something like thirteen hours or something. Oh yeah, and yeah. So if it, it's, I mean, it's it's a classic book by Willa Cather. You know, if you are familiar with her, uh, it's a wonderful World War One book called One of Ours. And the uh, reader did such a good job. We want to nominate him for an award on it. He did a fabulous job. I am with that fascinated book. with that subject of the First World War. Yeah, I've. I, I, the I haven't seen the film that that Peter Jackson done uh, have done have. yet. Um, they won't grow old. Mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of the footage that came out of this. It is incredible what they what those guys did with this film, and it's a, it's just a fantastic story. Of course, it's Peter Jackson, but uh, the technical aspect of this film is really a landmark. Oh, taking yeah. vintage footage like that and 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 computer enhancing it. And it doesn't look like computer-generated anything. It makes what's there so much more real and believable. It's an assault in a good way on your senses. They hired, didn't Peter hire like lip readers to to determine what those guys were saying on camera? And then they they brought in actors to script it out and... Yes. Uh, what a, and, and also they would they would do things like they colorized it, yes. which that's always been kind of a, a bad thing to me to colorize a black yeah. and white film. But this it, it, it was necessary almost. And they just they, they they actually went and researched the color of the grass in certain areas yeah. to get the green exactly a match. And so it brought it to life. I, I strongly recommend it. Yeah, I, I, I definitely want to see this, uh, and I'm sure it'll be a, a little more widely available. Uh, your book, White Boy, I think is uh, I, I think you should find some way to put this on the screen. Uh, there's oh. some. Oh yeah. Even though there's nothing like these would make vignettes me happier come... than if Hollywood came knocking on my door. Uh, it's an independently published book, an indie publisher, sure. Devault Graves. And for any indie publisher, you're fighting against a giant. It's like if if you were. 
you know, Sun Records competing against RCA and Columbia back mm-hmm. in the old days. Mm-hmm. You got an uphill battle. But, you know, it is what it is, and uh, I just hope it reaches a good many people out there. I think so. Um, Natalie, you were, you were said there was, a, there was a topic you wanted to get into here. Yeah, but uh, I want to take a quick step backward because we skipped over a really cool Bessie Smith story. That's it, Bessie, Bef- yes. Yeah, right before we go into how Tom met his uh, second wife and actually the love of his life, Yeah. Uh, I, I'd like for you to take a step back and talk about how when – um, before you were with the SES, you were working at, yeah. I think, Richards uh, when you met this uh, uh, special man that encountered this, uh, the horrendous events that led up to yeah. uh, Bessie Smith's death. Well, uh, before I changed horses in midstream life and, and went back to college to get uh, an advanced degree to teach college, that's what I was after, is to teach college. So when I was 40 years old, I went back to school. But before that, I'd been an advertising and public relations writer. And my biggest, longest job was with uh, what was then Richard's Medical Company. It's now known as Smith & Nephew. So a lot of people out there listening probably know of Smith & Nephew. Sure. Well, we had a consulting physician, a super surgeon, as they call him, orthopedic surgeon, who uh, looked over everything I wrote to make sure it was all medically correct and all that. Well, he would correct my grammar, too, let me assure you. He was a take-charge guy. He was retired from surgery. He was in his 70s, and he was quite a character. His name was Dr. Hugh Smith, and uh, he was a brilliant surgeon. Uh, He was responsible for a whole lot of the orthopedic advances in the world. Uh, I could could spend half an hour talking about his credentials. A great tech advisor, if you will. He was, and he, he... he certainly met, you know, if, if I needed to be got on to, he would get on to me, you know. <laughs> and he was quite a character, and uh, he was not ashamed to have a drink before 5 o'clock either. I hear and, you, brother. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure he kept a supply on hand. As it, a it, doctor, yes, you would need this. I've got to study the nerves before I get into this, this knee job. Well, Dr. Smith and I worked pretty close together. Uh, you know, off and on because of the necessity it's of the good job. Thing you're not in for, medicine, Rick. <laughs> uh, we were uh, we were waiting to go uh, on a plane trip with other members of Richard's Medical, and he came up to me, and he with bourbon blooming on his breath, <laughs> he whispered in my ear, "What do you bet some big fat nigger woman comes and sits right next to me on this plane?" <gasps> Well, what does an underling like me say to that? Well, you can't say anything. You know, you just go, wow, has he had too much to drink or what? He wow. hadn't even got on the plane. <laughs> so anyway, I was thinking, wow. well, gee, he's, 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 he's back in dad territory here, you know. Well, it's daddy all after over again. I left Smith and Nephew Richards, uh, I discovered, to my surprise, that Hugh Smith had been driving down Highway 61 about 2 o'clock in the morning, back when he was an intern at Campbell Clinic. He was just starting out as an intern. Brilliant man, many years to come. And he comes across a terrible car accident on the highway. A black woman and black man had sideswiped a car that had been parked on the shoulder, and it was in the pitch black dark. It's kind of come back on the highway, and they come along, and it shears the woman's arm off below the elbow and she's lay they're laying out in the middle of the road she's bleeding to death literally oh, what how horrific so here this you know surgeon comes along and he sees what's happening 
And he goes, my, you know, my God, she's going to bleed to death. He applied a tourniquet and was taking fishing gear out of the back seat of his Chevrolet. And along comes a white couple in the car, kaboom, behind them. And now you got four people laid out in the middle of the road, and you know, and he's trying to take care of all of them. And he's, his friend's gone to a farmer's uh, house, and they've got ambulances on the way. And the woman laying in the road that was black was Bessie Smith. Wow. On her way to a concert the next day. Wow. Okay. So they take her to the black hospital, which is right next door to the white hospital. Now, back in those days, people, they would not take a black person to a white hospital. For the same reasons, they would not let a black person into a white swimming pool. Right? Okay. It's crazy, but that's the way it was. Crazy well, fucked up, but yeah. It really yeah. is. Yeah. It, it is, of course. But that's the way everybody understood it back then. So nobody bothered to try to take her to the white hospital. The, the, the black hospital, I've been in that place. It's where it's it, the Riverside it, Hotel now, isn't it? it exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It is. Yeah. But it was closer, too, wasn't it? Ah, it was. Well, it, it, it was so close. It was not a half they a mile next door. apart. Yeah. Right next door. So they took her there, and she had severe internal injuries. And she didn't make it. Were there white doctors that worked in the black hospital or vice That person? I don't know. I, that I really don't know. Uh, but she died. And uh, now there's grown up a legend, just like with Robert Johnson, these legends, this, this mythology, that she was refused admittance to the white hospital, therefore she died. So his racism is what killed Bessie Smith. Right. Well, no. The guy that whispered that to me, before we got on the airplane that said those racist words to me is the same man that tried to save Bessie Smith's life. Now, is that a contradiction or what? But you know, in the South, things are very complex. Okay. It's when we don't, it's when we don't think it's complex is when we get ourselves into some trouble. Right. So did he do more good than harm? Even if he thought these words in his head, well, I guarantee you, Dr. Smith saved thousands of black lives, or, bro- or or at least mended their bones. No question about that. He was the editor of the uh, Campbell Operative Orthopedics, which is like the Bible for orthopedic surgeons around the world, not just Memphis, y'all. Okay, so do I forgive him for what he said to me that day? Of course. He was a he was a bigger, better man than that alcohol fueled utterance that day. I, you know. You got to give people a little slack sometimes, and I do. Was did did you I say can, something bad? Yeah, I could see where you're coming from on that because you know here's here's a guy that's you know he's 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 letting his he's letting his culture kind of come through his own personal culture come through, but not knowing if anybody else had heard that, not knowing that he was there trying to save the life of one of the greatest singers in the industry right. at that time. They're laying on the side of the road, bleeding to death. Now I gotta you know. say that bits but and look, pieces. But look, what y'all are missing is is that Tom grew up with this. He was used to hearing this from oh, his sure. dad all his young life. Right. So right. It got cringy when he heard yeah. it again all these years later. He did take a second step back, but I think unconsciously he just went back to, you know, the same thing. Yeah, it was unconsciously, like, it, was like, it, was it was like his dad saying it all over again. Second verse, same as the so first. So he didn't time, put yeah. a whole lot of, you know. But but you know, did, did, there was no way I was going to say anything to Doctor Smith because I mean he was in every way light years ahead of me in the world. Well, sure, you know, sure. But uh, anyway, it, it it does make for an interesting story. He was an interesting man. 
I liked him, even though he chewed me out more than once. Uh, you know, but if, if I got if I did something wrong, he would he it was like a surgeon. I mean, if you're in the operating room and a nurse doesn't do something right, you holler at him. You know, you're gonna get okay, your ass yelled gonna, at. Yeah, 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 that's just the way it is. So he was used to that kind of 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 godlike status. So I I understood he was a god and I was not. Okay, right. But I, you know, I'm glad to know the man, and I'm you know, and 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 bits and pieces of this story have been floating around out there. Uh, I mean, like, for example, it's been written about that Hugh Smith stopped to help her, but nobody's pieced all this together the way I have in, in, in its totality like this. So I, I, I claim that I tell the full Bessie Smith story here really for the first time. Wow. And nobody really knew who Dr. Smith was that ever wrote about him. Right. And I knew the man. I mean, I, I, I knew him very well because, I mean, you know, he's a guy I practically lived with to some degree, you know, because he, he, he had to approve every word I wrote for six years. Uh, if if he, I assume he's not alive now, no, he's deceased. Yeah. Um, do you think he would he would be approved of or he would approve of what you've written? Oh, he probably that? would have wanted to come on the show. I'm guessing. Oh, <laughs> uh, you know. Uh, oh, he'd be having a bourbon and coke right here with us. I don't think no coke. Going to be plenty of bourbon though, right? I, I don't know that. I don't. I don't know. I mean, you know, that would be interesting, wouldn't it? Uh, you know, he probably wouldn't have cared that much. He was sort of one of those guys that's above reproach. You know. Like so, what I said that, yeah, big deal, big deal, yeah. I, I would, I would have a feeling he would feel like that. Like I didn't do anything that big a deal, yeah. You know, it's the way, it's the way yeah, we grew yeah, up, you know? it's the way we lived, yeah, yeah. And you know, yes, yeah, of course, I stopped and tried to help her. What was I going to do? You know, there was th- this thing about John Wayne not long ago uh, that that was that uh, that interv- the interview he did with Playboy magazine. Yes, I've read it, which is rather racist. By today's standards, it certainly by is. today's standards, yes. Yeah. And yeah. back then. Not so much, you know. No. And there was this argument about giving the man a pass because that was the way it was. But at the same time, it's like, well, if you knew that that was the way it was, then couldn't you have not stood up for that? He was a complex man, too. He was a very complicated man. Uh, you yeah. know, uh, I grew up at a time where you were supposed to hate John Wayne because of his political beliefs and so forth. And because of things like like that, I mean that was that was a well known thing. What happened with that Playboy interview? Sure. Uh, and I, his screen persona uh, in his best films made me think uh, this guy's more than just what everybody's saying he is. Well, I've read pretty deeply some really definitive biographies of John Wayne. He was a complex man. Uh, did you know he was extremely well read? Oh, yeah. oh yeah. Did you know the walk that that he walked? Was a created walk yes, it as was. an actor. It was not his natural walk. Uh, there's all kinds of things about him. The reason he turned to the the right wing of the Republican Party, in part, was because in Hollywood, some of the communist factor there were after every actor to join the communist party. And he he as a, as a, a guy who grew up in Middle America, really resisted all that. And it, it made him go harder patriotic and all that stuff, maybe to his detriment to some extent. But at least I understand what happened now yeah. where I didn't before. But he's an interesting man, but anyway. Yeah, I brought that up because there's some similar parallels between him and, and the doctor. And Dr. Smith, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, because, because, look, because of that time. I You've got to be careful about looking at the past uh, through, through modern sensibilities because 
Times have changed. My book is proof of how times have changed. Exactly. Well, because you, you lived know, it. In, I lived it. And, 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 you and, went through and that the change. The message yeah. through this book is there should be optimism. Yeah. If I came from where I came from and I'm where I am now and have overcome all this, surely there's some good that came out of it. Well, of course. You know. I think you do an excellent job in the book, you know, of, of letting us see that through your eyes. Thank you. You know, as Thank you were you. going up. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I've had complexity in me my whole life, you know. Uh, I mean, uh, so it, it's, it's the world you know is the world you live through, you know. So that's that that's it. Well, ballsy but, is is a word I would use. Um, you know that that you're exposing yourself. Oh yeah. To 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 this Completely. world. Well, that, that that where you were raised in this in the society and in, in, in Memphis, which was our it's Memphis is a complex town. It always has been. It always has been. Well, yes. I, uh, I hope f- we have. Are we going to do one more break? Because I hope we have to. We're getting into some of the really juicy parts of when he meets his second wife on Match.com. So. Well, I tell you what, then let me grab this one break. We'll come right up out of mm-hmm. the break. No, no tune, and and we'll get into this, and they'll give us all the the whole. Yeah, whole, that takes whole... us out through the end of the book. Will that work? Yes. No spoilers now. Not at all. We want people to buy the thing. No. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, surprise ending. Okay. I was shocked at the ending, I will say. <laughs> Spoiler I was, alert. I will only say that. Way to go, Natalie. You spoiled it for everybody. No, it's Something cool. about Infinity Stones and everybody else. <laughs> Uh, there's a, one of my favorite writers is a deceased uh, guy that, that I actually interviewed named yeah. Harry Cruz. He was the toughest gritty grit writer that ever was. Man. Yeah. And uh, his thing was if you got if you're gonna be a writer, you gotta get naked. You gotta get naked before God. You gotta get naked. Yeah. Before Please don't tell me you were naked you when gotta, you were writing this. You got no, 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 no. He didn't mean it literally. <laughs> Please, you don't need. I, I don't want to curse you with that. Uh, but what you have to do figuratively. Well, I'm not that bad now. Come on. What he could uh, do with a with a keyboard is amazing. I think. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you got you got to bear it all. Well, and in fact, uh, in the. In, in the first go round with this, I, I had a professional editor that I wanted some feedback from. I think I told you about that. Right, right. And uh, he said, Tom, there's a couple of parts in here. And he pointed them right out. He said, You're holding back. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, he, he had me guilty, man. Guilty, 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 guilty. I bet and I he know said, what one go, of them was. He said, Go back and, and, and revisit that and, t- and, and get naked. I mean, it, it, that's a term that writers know. Yeah, get naked. So yeah. I did, and I, I said, okay. Instead of holding it like this, I pulled it up like this. And owned it. And owned it. And, and, and I'm so glad I did because, I mean, whatever the fallout of this book is, I, 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 I bared my soul. Fantastic. And, you know, and, and I don't a few know other I, things. I mean, I definitely <laughs> and, and what? And a, and a few other things. Few other things yeah. <laughs> well, we'll get to those here. Let me grab this break. We'll be back in just a few oh, minutes. I thought we were on break. No, 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 no. No, that no. was on the that was on the air. No, all that was on the air, Tom. Okay, all right. Okay. Oh, well, there's whoa, more whoa, of this whoa, to whoa, come. Whoa, whoa. So, uh, so you kids stick around. You're listening to it right here, right here. Here on this Sunday night, uh, we are sitting here chatting with Mr. Tom Graves about his brand new book called White Boy, a memoir. All right, I'm here. I'm ready. <laughs> He's still white. I'm still white. <laughs> He's black where it counts, we learned. Um, uh, 0.4%. 0.4%. And uh, here's, here's, here's the part of the program I've been told is where things get a little more salacious, if you will. What have you got, what have you got there, uh, Natalie? I, I, 
you've read this thing like five times now, so. Six extras tonight, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so, Tom, we're, we're going to talk about how Tom meets his second wife, who is the love of his life, his soulmate, if you will, who he meets on Match.com. So, I guess... He had just discovered online dating, right, Tom? Well, it was a brand new thing. Uh, Match.com, when they came out, I don't know if anybody remembers this but me, uh, Match.com gave you six months free. So if you were single and, you know, they, 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 they were giving it to you every which way through emails and all this. Sure. So, okay. All right. And uh, it didn't do much for me, to tell you the truth, you know. And right about when uh, my six-month trial period was up, I discovered that you could look at women all over the world, not just in your Memphis area. Like, whoa, what? I didn't notice this. Click, click, you know. Hey, man, there's women in Iceland. There's women in Argentina. You know, I mean, I didn't think about ever dating. Mail order bride city is what that was. You know, I talked to a few of them just for giggles, you know, but nothing ever. Belarusian women love you long time. Well, I had applied for a Fulbright, which is a teaching award to teach overseas government grant and it's a very nice grant a very prestigious and i wanted to teach in uh in senegal to learn the roots of blues oh yeah yeah western africa so yes. yeah i thought well that would be the coolest thing ever if i could spend a year over there and i, w- I could study blues and this and that and the other so i sent i did all the tons of paperwork for it you know sent it unconsciously unconsciously has to be thinking there well, uh, so looking black women over, over there. <laughs> well, I looked to see if there was anybody from Senegal on there, and there was this. There were actually two. One, not you know, okay. One, oh, she's kind of pretty, and she was from Sierra Leone, and I was interested also in a secondary job in Sierra Leone. So, well, that's two birds with one stone here, and she's kind of cute too. So let me. Throw out a bone over there. Well, okay. Throw a bone. So, you know, yeah. <laughs> so, um, hey, young lady oh. over there. Uh, you know, I'm Tom in Memphis. Uh, tell me about your countries. I've applied for some jobs over there. I'd, I'd just like to hear from somebody that lives there what it's like. And, and can I ask you some questions? Well, yeah. She responded very friendly. And she seemed really nice. And uh, so we started a dialogue, you know. The next thing, I was teaching, and I'd come home uh, in the afternoons, and and lo and behold, there would be an email from her telling me about things going on, and I was getting a, a, a view of life in this country, and it was really nice. And, you know, it got a little friendlier and a little friendlier, and she invited me to call her on the phone, and which is uh, very expensive, you know. I would Skype. imagine so. And, uh, so, I, so I called her, but I, I, her French-accented voice... <clears throat> I, I fell in love. Oh, I mean, I, yeah. I, oh, my God. And oh, then yeah. I saw some of her other pictures. I said, she's drop-dead gorgeous. And that voice, and she seems to like me. And I got an email waiting for me every day. I was I, this is before sexting. People could do sexting on their phones. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, we got closer and closer until one day she said, my heart takes you. Now, that's obviously an Africanism. And I thought that was the most beautiful thing that any woman had ever said to me. And all of a sudden, I mean, I was just floating on air. And it just got more and more, it developed into a real relationship. 
to the point we have petty arguments sometimes on the phone. And we <laughs> began to plan how we could get together. And it became a problem. And, and to get her over here was to get her on a student visa was enormously expensive. And somebody suggested go over there, create the lay the groundwork, and bring her over on a fiancé mm-hmm. visa. Mm-hmm. And I did. I mean, I, I hocked all my valuable guitars. I know. Kind of broke it. my heart when oh, I read all I mean, that. Oh, 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 really did. Yeah, but all the know. color just drained out of Stephen's face. I yeah. know. My favorite, my favorite oh, guitar. Uh, I sent you. I sold. You have one of them, don't you? <laughs> Cover his ears on this. Part. I sold this high dollar Les Paul, a real Les Paul, to a guy in Perth, Australia, and that 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 went a long way right there. But it was expensive to even go over there. But uh, I went. It was the best ten days of my whole life. Best. I mean, well, I would imagine. And yeah. she was beautiful, and our romance was just like out of a novel. You know, it it's was a storybook deal. Her. Yeah, yeah. I, loved her. I met her. Met you know the family members that she had. Their two brothers, uh, an uncle who approved of our relationship uh, with the ritual feast and everything, and. Uh, I, I, was it I, one of those that she had like a dowry of like three camels and some no, sheep, you know, that kind of no, thing? No, Dakar is a, is a more modern city than Pine Bluff, Arkansas. Oh, well, okay then. You, there you, you go, know. yeah. All right. I mean, I'd rather live there than Pine Bluff any day. Uh, no, it's a nice place, and the people were wonderful to me. Uh, n- there's no such thing as racism uh, over there towards me. Uh, everybody was beautiful, the whole thing. I just couldn't wait to bring her over. Sure. And so I worked and worked to get it together. I mean, I, I had to make so many applications to bring her finally it happened and she came over october 1st 2004 and i mean i the planes were delayed so i waited hours in an empty nashville airport oh my god so so okay it seemed like 500 people came off the plane before she did finally there she was so i run to her i pick her up i kiss her and something right then and there said something's not right Something's just not right. Uh oh. So, you know. What year was this? Two thousand four. Oh, okay. So, uh, I could tell the story much longer, but I'll break it down for you. Uh, she, I woke up one morning and she was staring right six inches from my face, looking straight into my eyes, and she broke down and I started wailing, like, "What the hell is going on here?" And she got up and was pacing and, oh, you know, and all this. Well, what, what's going on? She said my first husband, who had been killed in Sierra Leone, that's, that's in the book and it's a long story. She said he came to me as a ghost and he visited me in a vision. And he told me that, uh, yeah. that I'm not yours, that I'm still his. And he's, he's pregnanted me, is what she said. Pregnanted. Said, well, honey, Honey, you're not pregnant. I said, we don't believe in this. She said, we believe in these things in Africa. And she was crying and carrying on. I said, we don't believe in that stuff. Now, come on. But she was so upset. I said, do not go to work where you're working today. I said, just stay home and, and, and calm down. And I'll be back this afternoon after teaching. So because she said she was pregnant, I said, well, I'll stop off to prove that this is all silly business. And I'll get her a pregnancy test kit. Oh, yeah. So I came home with the pregnancy test kit, and I said, okay, just pee on this stick here, and see, you'll see it's all just a bad dream, and you'll be over. She peed on the stick, and it was positive, y'all. Now, here's the issue. Oh, my. Oh, Tom Graves had a vasectomy a long time before I met her, so I could not have any babies, y'all. So 
She went completely ape shit. I would imagine, she, she yes. She went to the kitchen and grabbed a knife and was prepared to cut herself with the knife. And I'm telling you, this was serious, y'all. Uh, oh, I believe was, it, yeah. This is, oh, my to, God. I had to talk her down. She got almost catatonic, and I took her to the emergency room. And they, they said, well, uh, you know, we'll, we'll do a more definitive test than that. Then <laughs> they was... did. She's pregnant. So somebody said, well, get an ultrasound on her. So they did an ultrasound, and it proved that she had conception about three or four weeks before she came over to me. And so I was so upset. I, it was just crazy, 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 crazy. And uh, wow. eventually the story that she came through with was that a former boyfriend of hers that had actually gone to France, had come back to visit, yeah, taken her out on a, on a day visit, took her to his apartment where his family greeted her, then the family left, and he pounced, she said. So this one-time pounce is what's produced the pregnancy. And now... Uh, whatever you want to think, imagine what that did to our relationship. Because she was supposed to be devoted to me, right? Right. Okay? And she wasn't. And then this happened. And 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 I had a very hard time swallowing the story. And I I wanted to love her so bad. And so it was was my Sophie's choice in life. Because already I was deeply in love with her. I mean, I just loved her to death. But I felt so betrayed. And I... Only a couple of friends that would I even dare to tell the story to, and they told me, man, they were they were on the forgiveness thing, you know, Christian forgiveness thing. Sure. And uh, I'll just let it go. Have no, the kid. Said, if you if you let her go on this, she's going to love you more. That was the the thing. Didn't happen, y'all. It was it was six years, and it was nothing but a roller coaster, and other things happened too, uh, and eventually we we broke up. She wound up kind of raising this child then. No, she, she did not been have there, the child. Been oh, there, she, been there. Oh, okay. Well, what, what I told her, and, you know, may, maybe, maybe you know, who knows? Uh, some of y'all may not like. I just said, look, I can send you back to Africa if you want to have the child. I'll, I'll do what I can, and I'll borrow the money, I'll do whatever, and I will get you back to Africa if you want this baby. But I said, there's no way I'm going to raise it. And she said, then I'll terminate. I said, look, I don't want to have anything to do with it. I, I will not spend a penny of my money on something. This will be your choice, so you can't come back on me and blame me for this someday. Right, right. Okay? And I said, I want to talk to your mother, too. Now, her mother didn't speak English, just a few words. But anyway, we communicated enough. And what was her final word to me? Terminate. Really? So I arranged it. It happened. It, it was a place I never wanted to be or expected to be in my whole life. This was this was as traumatic for me, I'm telling you. Yeah, because you go from one from extreme at the beginning yeah. of, of a potential found love. This is something that, that, is, that is, it's, it's touched your soul. She was my soulmate, okay? I can say that. My first wife I loved, but this was a whole plateau of love. I, I was, I, she was. She was per. It's different, people, yeah. all over, people all over the town where we went out to eat and stuff. They would see us as a couple together. Uh-huh. Only recognized us as a couple. If we were separated, like who are these people? But together, they knew exactly who we were. You know? Wow! I mean, yeah. we were a couple That's known special. Yeah. all over. Uh, and then we broke up, and she's now moved to New Haven, Connecticut, yeah. where she lives and is doing well. Uh, she remarried somebody from Sierra Leone, 
and is already divorcing that person. Uh, she had but a that dog. was pretty this, quickly, she, too, way, after y'all split up, right? Do what now? That was pretty quickly Well, we, after y'all. Yeah, yeah. Okay. We, because she said to you, you said to her jokingly, what'd you do, go off and get married again? And she goes, well, yeah, I did. And you just, like, passed it off. But then you well, found she out she really hand, was. She always had rings on her fingers. So I didn't think that it was for real. I just thought she was messing with me Uh, because she was that way. She she was always, she was very jocular, very funny, you know, and we had lots of, so I just thought she was messing with me. And then uh, on her Facebook post, I see this where she's dressed like a Disney princess with this man, you know, and I, I, it was, we'd broken up and we were living apart and everything. And it was just like a spear went right through my heart. Right. And that, it's the last time I felt that way. I mean, I got over it, and she's now in so New Haven, Connecticut. We of, are barely talking now. How long were y'all actually married? Together? We were married officially six years, but we stayed romantically uh, together for another two years. Okay, so 2004 to 2010, and then 2012 is when we actually divorced. And we had, we had without even speaking about it, we stopped having romance with each other and just became friends after that. And we actually were pretty good friends, but she tried to pull one of her every now and then just, she pulls one of these con. She's a con woman. Okay. I can get into that more, the con part of, of was she conned you before you, but she conned I, before, before she you even, even married. Her. Yes. Yes. Of course. She was conning you yeah. before she even got but, over But here you know, when all this was happening, I money. couldn't piece it all completely together. But in retrospect, I see, Oh, this, this piece of the puzzle fits here. Now I can see it better. Right, know? right. So right. now I, I see that I was conned. She tried to con me, telling me that uh, she had an a, accident. She was she well. That was she that was do before her job. I, was, I know. I know. Yeah, yeah several cons. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, but recently, she tried to tell me that a friend of hers was in a car bomb attack in Iraq to work for the UN, and it's a complete BS story. I looked it up. I mean, there's nobody over there. You know, they have records going back of every car bomb attack in Iraq. Really? In Baghdad. If you look it up, they're like such and such a year, such and such. It goes back 20 years. Was there any mention of a U.N. worker in a new car bomb attack? Of course not. She made it up. She made it up. And I called her on it. And and now a con person, what's the worst thing that can happen to a con person is when they've been exposed as a con. Right. Okay. Well, they never admit it. No, no. And so only recently is she she called me a couple of times about little things. You know, people told me said that, that you know, man, she's always going to come back to you in some way to just to talk to you to to, to feel exactly you out on this exactly like that. my second husband. Like you know, she too. called me to see about her four hundred one k. Like how should she invest her money? Because she knew I knew more than she did. Right. And I I just pretended that none of that hate and aggravation happened, and neither did she. But if she ever reads the book, which I doubt she will, unless somebody out in the listening audience, particularly one of the African friends of hers, and says you have and to said, read, you this. must read this. Yeah. You're in this, you know. And I won't say her real name. We call sure. her Fatima in the book. Right. But uh, I, the last yeah, words you in can the tell book me are break. now. Uh, she see she had a, a child through through the apparently I'm not even positive about this through the husband that got killed in Sierra Leone. Okay. Well, that child stayed behind in Africa, and I've never met her daughter, who's now about 20 years old. Right. She's, 
I wanted the daughter to come over and we would be a family. I know that's but she another kept, weird she, thing. I never, I never understood that. She always stonewalled bringing the girl over, even though I, I had open arms to her daughter. I wanted, to, I, I, I wanted more than one child in my life, and so I was ready. To, to basically adopt this girl for all practical purposes. I sure. wanted this. Sure. So, I think it was yeah, because she, she she was somehow proven an unfit mother over there and she didn't want you to know. I don't know what the I don't really know what it is, but she she she's had many chances and she still my last words of the book. What what was what does it I say? Can I Oh God. What can I say? That, that's why I say this ending of this book sucked, Tom. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean I'm sorry. <laughs> I love the book. No, that's on the book's that's, great, but the ending just blows. That's why I said the, the, it's a surprise. That's why I said it was. Well, thinking, there may be a part it's two. It's a Who surprise knows? ending because it sucks. Well, okay, okay. Let me read the sucky ending. Okay. 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 It's very short. Very short. It's your book. I say Fatima's daughter, the one I was just talking about, y'all. Fatima's daughter, as I write this, has still not set foot in the USA. The sad truth is, despite it all, I still love her. And I will never know if she truly loved me. That's I mean, it just ends it just like, okay, but, but it didn't want, work out. Well, you know. But I want you to think about it. I want you to dwell on That's it. I want it. you to cry like, over it. Yeah, you want to meditate on that because, because it, which leads what me else, What else am I supposed that. to say, I mean, Natalie? Uh, what, was, what, what was supposed to come next? Well, well Tom, let me ask you this then. You know, through the process, you know, like I got over it. I'm doing this now or that or whatever, anything except for... <laughs> Well, here's but, what well, happened. The truth of the matter is, I haven't I had a relationship. Her. Don't know. Like that. Bye. No, I'm out. Re- I, I had mean, a, just. Bleh. I haven't had a single relationship ever since we broke up, and uh, that I, I basically I haven't had the oomph to get out there well, to sure. do it much. That, I, I just, mean, you know, so what? You know, so I'm just. Well, I can say the same thing about me, but nobody cares <laughs> about that shit. Well, you know, <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I, when, when I look back, I know of one. People ask you know, me, "Do I regret?" Do hey, I regret Dylan my... said, "Dylan said, don't don't look for your don't because me and my my son was talking about his friend. They're twenty one, and he said, Mom, Colton doesn't want to go on vacation with me. He wants to go somewhere and find himself.'" Dylan said, "Don't go, don't go looking to find yourself or anything. Create yourself." That was on Rolling Thunder. <laughs> well, so if I didn't get anything else well, out of that what, whole thing. What I wanted to ask you about this this whole process with, with White Boy, Tom, was that you've had to go back and revisit, and you were talking about this, you had to revisit some very dark places. Oh, yeah. As well as yeah. some, you know, there, there's the high points and, and low points. And the part where I'm talking about the streetwalker, I've yeah. never revealed to anybody till I wrote the book. Wow. Not a single soul. Would you be comfortable at, this point in time, now that this is out there, to say, I have regrets or I don't? Uh, when I look back at my life, I mean, oh, there's certain things that I would do differently, uh, you know, on a day-to-day basis. Oh, I wouldn't have gotten into an argument over this. Right. You know, that kind of that kind of stuff. But, major, you know, uh, no, I don't have that many regrets. Uh, I do sort of regret that, that my first marriage was rushed into because I was sort of – a late bloomer, and yeah. I thought, uh, yeah. you know, I have. I, it's been a long time since I've had a steady girlfriend like this. This is great. I want to marry her. Why? Why would I want to, to not have this anymore? Right. And well, look, uh, but I, it, it, I, I consider myself a late bloomer too. And I didn't get married the first time till I was thirty-three. Oh, really? Okay. So I don't think. 
But with Fatima, would you say there's any regret there? No. Uh, you know, no, I really, because the adventure, I say, it's, I, what I say is it's a, a safari that I, I'm not ready to, to, to uh, retake. You know, I got you. I know, uh, it's an I adventure. You. It wasn't done like, that it was like and, going on a wild safari right. and it was the adventure of your life. But would you want to go through it a second time? No, because <laughs> this so time much. you might die. You know, <laughs> the angry no, hippos will tear you limb from but, limb. But I do want to go back to Africa, but not the same part well, of Africa. You might want to revisit Wild Bills a few times, I'm guessing. Uh, did I, I, you know, I told him about going back there recently. Can I, shall I tell you? Oh, yeah, that? please uh, yeah, do. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. All right, all right. Well, I hadn't been there in at least, a de- at least a decade. <laughs> And uh, a friend of mine had turned on a, a, a guy from Switzerland that was – he came here about blues and music. All right? Oh, yeah. So uh, he, 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 he called me up through this reference for my friend. And he said, uh, you know, can you take me to a real juke joint? I said, I know just the place. <laughs> <laughs> so Wash I your hands him. before you now, go. Now, remember, I hadn't been to Wild Bill's in a decade or so, so I didn't oh, exactly yeah. know. I said, oh, well, yeah. we need to go kind of late. And we did, and uh, he came by himself. And uh, uh, when the band started, uh, he f- was freaked out. I mean, it was just to us kind of a typical blues band, but to a guy from Switzerland, doesn't hear oh, this all the time. All, it was this heaven. was like yeah. he said he wouldn't believe what this would be like in back in Switzerland. Sure, this would be the greatest thing ever, you know. So he was just knocked out. But the minute, but see, I was I, he hadn't come yet, and I walked into Wild Bill's. Okay. And right by the front door, there were these two black girls. One of them, well, they were both good looking, but one really pretty with a gold cap front tooth. And the first thing she said to me was, I got my hey. teeth. She, go, she, goes, she goes, hey, baby. She goes, come and sit right here next to me. So, <laughs> so, so I walked over to them and I started to, I said, look, I got a guy coming in. He's from a foreign country, and he's wanting to sit and check out the music. And I need to talk to him and stuff. But I tell you what, you know, uh, later you later, on, sign, later yeah. on tonight, how about I come back over and talk to you some more? Yeah, baby, do that. You know, so all right. So he that's he, hilarious. He, he had to go home to his family that had come with him. You know, he he could. So I said, okay. He he left. Let me go. Let me go over there with my drink. So I said to the girls, I said, do y'all mind if I sit with y'all like we talked about while I finish my drink before I go home? Hey, sure, baby, sit down. So we talked and carried on. So I said, well, my drink's gone, so I better go home. It's getting late. And she said, well, let's let's swap phone numbers. So I had a, a business card, you know, because my phone is phone yeah, number. Huh? Yeah. And, she, you know, so she gave me her phone number, and I gave her my card. And she goes, and she puts it down her bra uh-huh. in her cleavage, you yeah, know. Yeah. And she goes, <laughs> you saw where I put that, didn't you? <laughs> And I said, my mojo was back, you know. Wild Bills is yeah. the magic spot. So, you know, is- I mean, I'm thinking, oh, okay, I'm getting older now. I'm not, you know, I ain't got my mojo anymore. And boy, it came flying back. I love that place. The yes. Fountain of Youth exists right at Wild Bills. Nobody oh, ever man. knew that. Yeah. But you know, oh, I mean, now if I would have gone into to one of these, are Wang what, still a dollar then? <laughs> a dollar a piece. No, but, but Wang. Well, if I would have gone into some fern bar. With all the the white uh, salad eater girls, all East town. Memphis girls, yeah. You know, if I would have gone in there and would have flirted around, they wouldn't have given me the time of day. <laughs> but Wild Bill's, it's like, come on, baby, come on, baby, you we're know, here so to have a good time. You, where am I going to go? You know, exactly. What's my favorite bar going to be? <laughs> so you know, I mean, my daddy might still be spinning over that. You know, like, oh, my son, my son. 
But I'm telling you, I had, <laughs> I had more fun in that my Wild son, Bill's place. Son. That was just what's and funny. My, my and uncle. It's Father's Day, Tom. Well, I love my daddy, y'all. Everybody. Everybody knows it. My uncle. He's busy spinning, but yeah, it's Father's Day, yeah. My uncle. I have one uncle Is he alive. Still wearing a hood? I hope not by now. I have one uncle <laughs> left alive, and it's a Graves family in uh, Pine Bluff, Arkansas, still. And uh, so the last time I was there, before I was there recently, is a. You know, I got with my uncle Norman, and he's 85 years old at the time, and so we're we're driving and we're talking about this and that, and uh, he knew about my African wife and everything, and he confessed to me, well, you know, I've been with black women too, you know, like Uncle Norman. He got around anyway. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I I guarantee you, all the other graves were still back in the old. The old man. Oh, you know, we can't be having none of that now. But my uncle Norman, so I got to give my, I got to get him props, man. (laughs) (laughs) The book is called White Boy. It is uh, Mr. Tom Graves. It's available where sold. Get you a copy of it. The audiobook Audible uh, should have it out fairly soon. I'd say within a week or two. Really? If everything goes right. I should have done the audio book, actually. Well, Do you still it. Can. You still can. Should... It's coming out. I will have some free codes to give away. <gasps> Look at there. <gasps> Look at there. I will. Ooh. I will. I will let y'all know. Ooh, Look out. See, I Look can make out. all those kinds of noises that you can't. <laughs> uh, real quick, you got you got anything working behind this thing? Or are you just going to bask in the glory of this one for a while? Well, uh, the cookbook thing that I think I've talked about a yeah, little bit yeah, uh, is on hold. It's really basically finished, but the marketing of it is you know, I got to sell it. Yeah, you know, and this is not, a cookbook can't come out through my own imprint. Uh, it needs to go to a, a cookbook specialist. Sure. Um, it, we had a contract on the book, and they bailed out on us, which is almost unheard of in the business. But it ha- things happen in sure. the, you never the writing know. world. You never know. So who knows? But sure. I, I, it's a great cookbook and a lot of narrative. I mean, if you want to know how the, the, the ins and outs of real fried chicken, yeah, I'll tell you about it because I've screwed it up so many times I had to get it right finally. <laughs> so <laughs> They're like, I don't know. Yeah. yeah, y'all about to get schooled oh out God, of the break. I've got guesses. Super low. When all those fails, go to guesses. That's for sure. There well, are about a hundred recipes in the book. Well, next time you you got something, come on, bring it to us. Okay. It's always a Thank pleasure you. to have you here in the studio, Tom. My pleasure to be here. Thank you, Tom. Thank we you appreciate both. you. And I'll Thank see you, you at the reunion. I hope so. Yes. Yeah, I'll have my bodyguard there with me. <laughs> <laughs> or a date. Well, or honey, something. you need one. I do. To, to beat the boys off with a stick. You know, you need some. She's got to beat oh, the boys off both thank ends. Thank you. Yes, I do. <laughs> that's the way it goes. And that's not. The proceeding was produced by Pirate Radio Studios Incorporated and originally aired live on Radio Memphis. Any offers or advertisement contained may not still be valid. All rights are reserved and copyright is held by Pirate Radio Studios Incorporated, Memphis, Tennessee. For more, look for all the RMOD players at radio-memphis.com.